Well, hi everybody. Welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle. And uh, did we get the? Did we get it right? Did we? Did we get it right? Did, we did. We got it right. Here we go. Uh, we are uh, in uh, in position, and we have another perfect uh, perfect liftoff. Uh, as you know, as usual. I uh, hope everybody's doing well out there, and uh, it's great to be here. Sorry I missed uh, last week. That was a little last minute. Uh, complication it's a complication uh so uh, anyway we're back um so uh a couple things to chat about real quick uh and then we'll get on with the business of answering the questions uh let me see here uh, a lot of comments in the uh in the fabulous live chat room about um about nichelle nichols i don't know if, if you saw the right angle we did on that i was very happy with that um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, just thought it was just a really good life. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I realized, uh, ah, oh, there it is. And the, and the answer is, question was, uh, I asked myself, and put it on a little thing on my phone here. How long would it take <clears throat> until I got a comment about the hair today? And it was one minute and five seconds, and the uh, the prize goes to uh, John Pershing. Congratulations! Uh, I just I just you know that's the way it is today. I would have I've spent most of my life would have killed for this hairstyle. If I'd been in, had this hairstyle in high school, I'd be I'd be emperor of the world right now. <clears throat> uh, but uh, I didn't. anyway. Um, so anyway. Uh, the only thing that occurred to me, I didn't put it in the series. Uh, <laughs> it's not, I'm not sure. Better than Malibu Trotsky. Um, <clears throat> was that there are like seven major characters in Star Trek, right? So you got Kirk, Spock, McCoy. You've got Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, and uh, Chekhov. Chapel doesn't care. And when Michelle um, Nichols passed away last week, uh, that took us past the halfway mark. So there's four down, three to go. Uh, just, you know, I was going to say it's almost a little depressing, but honestly, it's a, it's a you know, she was 90-something, rather. 89. Um, and uh, and I don't think anybody thought uh, that um, that they were going to live, you know, this long. And I, and I have to tell you, I'm really surprised Bill Shatner's uh, one of those with us, but, you know, there he is. Somebody was making a point about that. Um, they are talking about how, uh, um, how old Patrick Stewart was uh, when he did the... You know, I've heard they're, they're bringing back uh, Picard for third season. Is that what I heard? We'll talk about that woke agenda and its uh, utter failures in a minute. But... Um, but somebody was saying, you know, I, I saw it from the clips, and needless to say, I never watched the show. But uh, Patrick Stewart looks like he's just on death's door, you know. And somebody saw, then somebody ran a picture of Picard today, <clears throat> uh, Patrick Stewart. And then somebody also ran a picture of Bill Shatner, like within the last couple of weeks. He's driving around on a on an electric bike. He's just zooming along, you know, having a great old time. He's kicking ass, man. Um yeah, Sarge, uh, Sarge, fifty-six is he'll be the last to go because he's a stubborn sob. Yes, he is. Um, but in any event, uh, 
I also it just it's just been a great uh, it just gets better and better on the pop culture horizon watching wokeism just you know go down in flames it really was just it's like you know this has been like being a Russian in in World War II honestly this whole this whole thing it's like there's this overwhelming assault push back you know and and they're just running all over us and then it looks like my god they're going to take the capital put us out of the war and then we you know and then we hold the line and now we're pushing them back pushing them back and they're starting to retreat faster and pretty soon they're going to be full on full on galloping away so um so that's been kind of fun to watch uh and um and uh, what was I going to say about that? Oh, so uh, the news I heard on the way in uh, via um, the future ruler of the earth, you know, who's my uh, pretty much my constant news source. Uh, and I think Drinker covered this too, although I haven't seen his episode on it yet. So um, they made, so they made a Batgirl movie, or Batwoman, I don't remember which. And they spent seventy million dollars on it. And uh, they did a number of tests screenings, and <laughs> and they came to the conclusion that the movie was so bad that they could not release it. It's not going to appear in movie theaters. It's not going to appear on streaming services. And you got to realize how much crap they actually do release. But Batgirl was so awful. Apparently, was so woke and so and so ridiculous and stupid that uh, that they that they can't. Uh, because it was just too, it was just unwatchably bad. $70 million. And they said, plus, you know, the reshoots and stuff, that takes it up to about 100 and stuff, and the marketing that's already happened. And then somebody, uh, Doomcock said that, um, that uh, because apparently, I, I didn't see any of these, but because apparently she appears at the end of another movie, which might have been the Flash movie or something else, they had to reshoot the ending of that. No, it was Aquaman 2, I guess. They had to reshoot the ending of that as well. And, and so it's going to cost them $300 million, something like that, uh, this, uh, this mistake. And so it's like, it, it's, just, it's just really great watching these landmarks come and go. Like, okay, here's, here's our stuff that we love, here's our culture, and here comes like the first attacks of wokeism, and here comes like more woke, more woke. Oh my God, now everything's woke, right? Now it just keeps coming, it keeps coming, it keeps coming. Then the audience starts like dropping off and, you know, and, and, and they keep coming, they keep coming, they keep coming, keep doing more. Then people in the real world start having problems with it, you know, and start doing the PTA meetings and, and, and all the school board stuff, and, and, and then it starts to slow down a little bit. And then they watch the value of their franchises turn to absolute dust in front of their eyes. And then they realize, hmm, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. And then you start getting like, you know, guys like um, John Favreau and a couple of other guys are saying, you know, we really need to get back to what we were doing before we kill these things. Don't call dead. It's too late, by the way. Um, and and, and then, then they start the backpedaling and then, and then all of it. And then finally, it's like weeps. We have a choice now. Uh, I think this sounds a little hot. Let me turn that down. We have a choice now, says the studio. We can either eat $300, $350 million loss, or we can release this thing, which isn't going to make us much money at all, and will certainly destroy the brand. And this is a, this is a milestone, folks. It really is. It's, it's an actual milestone. Uh, let's see. Oh, hang on.
I'm trying to get this thing down just a little bit there. Hopefully that'll do. It's a milestone. When when you get to the point where where they are ready to take that kind of a loss because it is so obviously bad, it, you know, it's just it's actually starting to get fun now. It's kind of starting to get you know really starting to get fun. So. Um, so that was good. More of this stuff's going to happen. Uh, let's see, a couple of uh, a couple things on the uh, other front, and then um, we shall dive into the uh, the questions and see if we can't get through those babies again. We did it last time. It's just astonishing. Uh, okay, so ninety three people. Well, I we're used to seeing sixty five, seventy maybe. So to those twenty three of you, and you know who you are, uh, welcome. Glad to have you here. And there'll be another 2,000 or so on YouTube. If I wasn't being dialed down, I don't know what those numbers would be. But in any event, yeah, and, and, and Merlin said they should have, what did Lightyear cost? Lightyear was probably $200 million, and, and then you throw in this other stuff. They've spent a billion dollars on stuff that's destroyed their brand. I don't need um, that much. Uh, I really don't. I need considerably less than that. So uh, just to get you uh, up to date on where the where the brain space is on this stuff, and then we'll then we'll get back to it. Um, I know it's a giant mistake, which I make pretty much every week, but uh, nevertheless, um, uh, somebody said I dropped the audio too low. Let me boot it back up a little bit. There we go. It was just starting to peak out here. So um, uh, come on, Bill. Oh yeah. So um, so I've, I've been working on this firewall to do the the story of. Uh, of Taffy 3, and I and I wrote the beginning about finding the wrecks. Um, volume's coming back up. Uh, did the volume, I mean, I did the story about finding the wreck of the the, the uh, Sammy B and then the Johnston and stuff. And then I thought, okay, and I'll just back up and start to set the stage for this thing. And I thought, well, how far should I back up? And then it turned out I backed up to Pearl Harbor. So basically this this firewall is going to be like one of those historical episodes that I do for Daily Wire. It's going to be long and it's going to be in-depth. It basically, here are the wrecks on the bottom of the ocean and, and I have a line that I've never heard before, although it seems so obvious. I can't believe I haven't heard it before. But basically, you know, I talk about how, how important these things are and how the, the glory of what these vessels did and the people on them burned so bright that it, 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 it's almost covered up by them. You know, 20,000 feet of... Um, of water, but it's still bright enough to, to get out. Um, and so I went uh, back to Pearl Harbor and basically just kind of did the whole Pacific War thing, basically. Um, and so uh, I'm looking forward to getting that out the door, but it's it's going to be uh, a real good one and a real long one. Uh, Political Animal uh, wants to know, what's the story with the Diaz for, for Dungeon? Is the final cut done? Uh, the final, no, the answer is no. Uh, just earlier today, I'm, I, somewhere about... Um, uh, and uh, how's the lip? I'll get to that in a second. Somewhere about um, a week or two ago, I guess, maybe something like that, I sat down with the headphones on and I watched it all the way through and I made a note of every little nit. I mean, every little tiny thing that could possibly be wrong with it. And I said to myself, I'll fix the ones that are, you know, I'll do the 80-20 rule, right? If I can get, if I can get, you know, 80% of them and, 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 and that cost me 20% of the effort. That's what I'll do. So just before I came over, I did one that was just, I knew in advance was gonna be one of the toughest ones ever. I fixed 
in the in the burnt forest this this opening uh scene in the burnt forest when when uh my character says hopefully they're safe and well back at the castle and he says no brother they're gone they're all gone and he starts walking forward zoe's armor really distorts really it really the the, the pattern on there really shifts around and i thought um you know what 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 the hell's why is it doing that here and not and not in other uh areas why is it so much it, it, it's there in all of them but it's it's manageable and in, in virtually all the ones but that one that that scene with the with the armor just doing that just really drove me nuts and so it drove, drove me nuts from the moment i put it in there so i found out months ago that the that the stock animation that i bought there's like an adventure walk and 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 when the guy's walking what he's what this is the stock animation he's doing an awful lot of torso twisting you know like this and so since he's twisting the torso the the part you know part of the bottom isn't moving and the top part is so in order to fix that i had to i had to re i had to re get a whole new set of walk animations retime it. it took me a couple hours but it's done so um there are a couple shots where it's still there but there's only one shot where it's really annoying, and I don't think I'm going to change the others because I just think it might be too much work. I'll, I'll take a look. But in any event, got that done. Uh, you know, just off the top of my head, other things that I do this, you know, this... Uh, what hath caused this great evil? And then later on, I do the uh, exact same... It's the exact same animation when I say... Um, what is the point of all of this? So I'm going to go to the uh, what have caused this great evil and replace that with something considerably less uh, dramatic and grand. Uh, and there's a bunch of other little tiny little things. There's on all the new shots that we did with the with the um, Davidius Davidimus Populum. That you could see the animation on the flame cycling. You know, it's like flame blink, flame blink. Get that out of there. But basically, it's 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 practically done. So this stuff that I'm working on now is the hardest one. I'm just going to go through get get basically all of it, then it'll be done. Um, and I added uh, also I added a credit. Um, uh, the um, after written by Bill Whittle and William Shakespeare, and before made possible by the members uh, by the by the members citizen producers at BillWhittle.com. Um, uh, I added, uh, directed, and animated by Bill Whittle because, you know, going to need to sell it off of that eventually. So, um, so here's uh, here's a little quick uh, animation update, and this will probably take about 20 minutes, half an hour, which usually means, you know, hour and a half. But in this case, I really think so. Uh, Dave said, for you know, for 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 uh, freak's sake, Bill, stop letting the perfect be the enemy of the good and just release the damn thing. Well, Dave, I did release the damn thing. I released it a month ago, and it's still out there. Uh, so it's not like I'm holding it. I I put out the I I went with the version that was as, that had that had um, I didn't, I went with the, what I thought was minimum uh, viable quality product, and now I'm just getting it all done so I can get a perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but there are things you know that bother me when I watch it. And the problem is, I know that most people won't catch, but some people caught some of it. Somebody, a lot of people, comment have, have said, "Well, the armor shouldn't be doing that." So, so that's one, you know. 
Um, some of them, I, I ranked them. I just went through and ranked them. I said, this is like an A problem. This is a B problem and a C problem. I'm trying to fix the A and the B. Uh, and, um, and welcome, uh, Japan0499, who's in the same hemisphere. Congratulations. It's always easier for, for me when everybody's in the Western Hemisphere. I don't have to, I have to raise my voice so much. And, you know, it's, it's, it's still a little tight. Um, but we're glad to have you here in the Western Hemisphere, which I'm biased, you know, but I think it's the best hemisphere, personally. Uh, okay, so, um, so uh, where are we now moving on? Well... I had a talk with uh, with the future ruler of the earth about about this whole plan, and I and I laid a bunch of stuff on him. It was a thirty minute data dump, and uh, and I think it was a little overwhelmed. It was about forty minutes an hour before his live show, and he had a lot of stuff to do. So I'm going to talk to him back, and and um, uh, and find out you know what he thinks about about that. But I, I, the main the main. Uh, I won't say problem exactly. Objective um, is uh, is making sure I have enough people sending traffic to the to the crowds or something. Um, uh, so uh, there's a, now there's a discussion about whether our friend from Japan is either when he said he's in our hemisphere, whether he meant the northern hemisphere, or the southern hemisphere. Japan's in the northern hemisphere. I'm pretty sure, isn't it? It's, yes. So, um, however, if you really want to, you know, you really want to just re-slice the apple. I think the Western Hemisphere is the best hemisphere, and I think the Northern Hemisphere is the best hemisphere, and I think the Northwestern Quadrant is the best quadrant. It happens to be where we are. Okay, so um, so the whole the whole thing is is kind of falling into place, and uh, and now um, I need. Uh, I need to figure out what I need for the for the uh, crowdsourcing campaign. I'm going to say Kickstarter just because it's easier to say than crowdsourcing. It it may not be Kickstarter, probably won't be. I don't know, but in any event, just for the shorthand. Um, so uh, so uh, I talked with a friend of mine last night, and he said um, he was he's been involved with a number of, of, of Kickstarter type raises in the past, but it's been years. So he had an excellent suggestion. He said, why don't you go look at Kickstarter and Indiegogo and a bunch of these other things and find out what's getting funded and what's not. And I thought, well, that's a damn good idea. So, um, so that's what I did uh, last night. And there's a bunch of stuff out there, and I mostly looked at science fiction stuff. And, and I used a couple of, um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to use GoFundMe. That's certainly not going to happen. It's not going to be GoFundMe because of the trucker thing. Um, in any event, I went there to look at what was working and what wasn't working. Um, most of the ones that were not working at all, I mean, you know, we want to raise, you know, $6,000 to finish the edit on this thing, and you know, they've raised $125, that kind of failure. Um, okay, hang on a second. Uh, political animal, you're going to have to bring that back to me. Can you just copy that and paste it when I get when I get to question time? Because I don't want to let that scroll by. It looks important. I don't have time to read it. Uh, uh, so... Um, so I looked at what was working and what wasn't working. The ones that were not getting any funding at all had one thing in common, and that was that they, and bless them, by the way, I don't mean any criticism. I, I really don't. But they're just unbearably bad garbage. They're just horribly. It really is a bunch of people who have never had any training at all 
going out and making a movie. And, and I respect that. That's how I got to be the cinematic genius that I am today, was going out and with my buddies when I was 16 and 17 and making bad movies. And then we started making better movies. Although I have to say that I think, I think even our bad movies were better than most of the stuff I see out there. We didn't have the talent, but we had the eye, you know? We knew, we knew what it was supposed to look like. And I think some people out there, I watch some of these things and it's like, they don't have a clue. So the first thing I realized is um, that whatever materials I put out there on the Kickstarter thing, it has to be very well written and very well acted because that's the one thing that all these things had immediately. It was just terrible acting and terrible writing and terrible lighting too, but really it was just, you know, so there was that. And then the ones that seemed to be successful um, were the ones that had, and I didn't do a deep dive into this, but the ones that struck me as the ones that were successful had something that I hadn't really, uh, I'd factored it, I hadn't realized that maybe it was as, as important as, as it is. And that was they had celebrities. I saw, uh, I think they tried to raise like a million dollars or something for, um, for a, uh, like a documentary called, um, uh, what's it called? Con Man, I think. Uh, and basically it's Nathan Fillion and the guy who played Wash, whose name escapes me, and they're doing a documentary about their post-Firefly, um, uh, you know, uh, life. And Nathan Fillion's just tremendous, and, and, and I cannot remember the name of the guy who plays it, but the guy who played Wash is the guy who's basically writing the movie. And he went around and he saw all of the, you know, he got like a lot of people who'd been in the show to do quick cameos on his on his fundraising pitch, Alan Tudak, Tudak. Anyway, anyway, um, so it was really these just these two guys on on camera having a good time. But they were going and they were picking out, you know, their, some of their celebrity friends. And I realized that 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 did well because uh, because it had. I mean, they, they, I think they wanted a million. They got three and a half. Alan Tudak. Yeah. Uh, so that looked like actually looked like a fun movie. Uh, and then. I know that when I first saw uh, Prelude to Axanar, I was blown away by it. And the thing that I was blown away by, Tudyk. Yes. Uh, and the thing that blew me away about Axanar was how bloody well written and how well acted it was and how well shot it was. I mean, there's huge close-ups. But those were professional actors. And, 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 and even in, in the beginning of Axanar, the very beginning, that narration is just, you know, that, that graphic, you know, uh, this is a galaxy-wide uh, broadcast from the United Federation of Planets made possible by Memory Alpha. It sounded professional. Uh, and everybody in that was great. Great. And, um, and they were all, uh, you know, sci-fi celebrities anyway, at the very least. So, uh, so I... Um, I took a look at that and factored that in. So that was successful. So I, I know that celebrities seem to work on the con man, uh, I think that's what it's called, the con man pitch. I know that Axonar has raised millions and millions of dollars, I think it's three or four raises now or something. And uh, while the guy who, who who's behind it and who plays Garth uh, isn't particularly famous, he had some people who, who had made some Star Trek appearances. And um, and this got me thinking to, to um, who could I get on camera to endorse this product or service? 
uh, for the uh, fundraising uh, pitch. And I have been scrupulous, believe it or not, despite the occasional lapses, I, I, I've actually um, I've actually been really guarded against name dropping as much as I you know as I possibly uh, could be because you know first of all a lot of that was you know was we were sworn to secrecy we had to, you know when you join that organization you had to take a blade and you know cut your hand like everybody else does in every movie you need some blood yeah just run a hand just run a let's just run a, a blade across our palm did that hurt no see how many times you've seen that and they go I think if somebody cut your palm with a blade, you'd be you'd you'd be like, take your oath somewhere. Just so actually, I started thinking about um, who I could get to endorse it and uh, and uh, and how. Um, it's got to be convenient for them because they're celebrities, and ideally, it would. It would be nice to have interaction, and I just need a sentence or two, interaction uh, with me so that they know it's not like they just phoned it in. So doing a little thinking here, um, and can I be crystal clear on this, please? Please, if any of you go and contact these people, I'll be very upset because I haven't talked to any of them yet, right? These are just people I know who I, who I, I think have a reasonable chance. So I thought what I'd do is I'd set it up so I'm here, stress for lunch thing and uh and i'd get them to call in on skype or whatever and we would do just a split screen you know hey blank uh good to see you again hey billy how are you i'm i'm great listen i've been working on a project for a while and and i'm, I'm certainly not making asking to make a commitment because you know we need to get the money and pay you and stuff but um i just wanted to know if you'd be interested in being a part of it if uh if we can get this thing rolling on this kickstarter thing and I think I think I could get uh, the following people. Uh, I, I think there's a good chance. I'm not saying I get all of them, but I think there's a good chance uh, I might be able to get uh, Gary Sinise to do that. I'm very likely to get John Voigt to do that. I'm very likely to get Bruce Boxleitner to do that. I'm very likely to get Kevin Sorbo to do that. Uh, I'm very likely to get Nick Searcy. I'm very likely to get Kelly Carlson. I'm very likely to get Adam Baldwin. Uh, I'm very likely, uh, semi-likely to get uh, uh, Mike Rowe. Uh, and there's a, there's a few others who are kind of a little further out on the periphery. Um, oh, uh, I could, um, oh, for God's sake. There's a, a, a there's a good chance I could get. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm having brain brain seizure here. Um, come on, Bill. This is so annoying when their faces are right in front of you. They're crazy, crazy famous people. Um, James Wood, I think, is a possibility. one other that was floating around in any yeah i mentioned i mentioned john boyd earlier uh i haven't i don't know dean kane but dean kane's a possibility but my point is i could easily i think without too much tr trouble put up you know, five or six celebrities and the good news is many of these people have long um i don't know kurt russell at all uh i wish i did he seems like a really cool guy um 
a lot of these guys have Orpin Spawn. A lot of these guys have pretty good long um, science fiction credentials. Adam Baldwin does, Bruce Boxleitner does, uh, Kevin Sorbo does, right? So, um, so they kind of bring Dwight Schultz. I haven't talked to him in forever. Um, I haven't talked to him in forever. I really miss him. Hang on one second. I just want to see if I still got a, a contact. Hang on a second. Sorry. I I haven't spoken to him in a couple years, at least more than that, five years or or, or even longer. Um, he is awesome. Yes, and he and he would and he would definitely do it. Uh, well, I can't say definitely. I can't say any of them definitely do it. But I think there's a good chance to get all of them. I mentioned Mike Rowe earlier. Um, what I get, what I get, if I can get him, what I get him is Murdoch or Barkley. I'd get him as a Murdoch Barkley. Uh, and um, and and what and the reason I bring up this uh, little cavalcade of wallowing in my own crapulence is because. Uh, it really does bring. It, it takes you above the level of these other things that are out there trying to trying to get funding. So I think that's actually a pretty impressive roster. So the other thing uh, I'll just talk to you about real quick in terms of what I need to get to the uh, Kickstarter phase is um, I've got five different storylines, so I need to have five little two-minute animations just to show what what how it feels, and and I need a, a sixth animation. So the first one I would get. Um, oh, by the way, yeah. Uh, and I could conceivably talk to my friend Bert and see if he'd want to be an aerospace advisor. And, and uh, you know, we've got friends who are SEAL team members, and uh, be awesome. Uh, so I think it's got I think it's got a lot of credibility. Um, so um, oh, and, and Gary Graham, how did I forget him? He uh, that was the first person came to mind. I, I know Gary pretty well. Uh, who was a you know big part of that. Um, uh, Axonar trailer. Um, so anyway, so I need I need five little animations, one for each storyline, and I need a sixth one. And I'll run the sixth one first. First thing I'm going to do before I show the other five is I'm going to say, all right, here's a technology that we'll be able to use if we can if we can get your support for this. I'm going to I've got a a decent. You most of you stratosphere loungers have seen it. I've got a pretty decent. Uh, metahuman version of my face. I'm going to find somebody who's had some experience with the deep fake. I'm going to do motion capture onto the metahuman, and then when I've got the metahuman, I'm going to put my face deep faked onto the metahuman. We've run these these clips before on Stratosphere Lounge, I'm not going to run them again. Um, but I've seen side by side wipes of here's metahuman, here's metahuman with Tom Cruise deep faked over the top of it, and it's, it's, it's night and day. So, um, so, uh, if I can, uh, and I can, I figured, well, I could get anybody, because really, you know, with deep fake, you just need to get, I don't want a celebrity. I figured the best person to do it would be me, because frankly, since I'm making the pitch on camera, this would give us a good idea of how realistic it would be if, if it really genuinely looks like I'm on the moon, or in a in a you know suit or something. Then um, 
that's it. Then that, if I can get that done, then I can say, okay, now all the scenes that you're about to see, imagine that they had this kind of technology on them. So, boom. and then the great thing about that is, in order to train the um, AI for the deep fake, all you need to do is is hire. Well, I originally thought hire actors, but it's not even actors; hire models, and they have to, you know, take a couple thousand pictures of them. You know, it's video really. And they different angles and making all the facial expressions and all, all of that stuff, and then you've got a really high quality video database for your deepfake to work on. And I think if I and, and I and I there's nothing, there's no if about it. This is something that we can do that we can get done. Um, okay, so real quick, I'm going to um, I got to put this pen out of reach. Uh, so real quick, I'll just tell you what these five things are off the top of my head. You got five stories to tell. Uh, the exploration story is um, maybe a quick shot of the Armstrong in orbit, and then uh, as a rover and it's moving and it's it's uh, it's like pea soup fog, right? And they've got really good sensors, and there's something moving behind them. So these guys stop the rover, and they got all these. You know, the rover's got these lights on the side, lights out the front. So all this white light just lighting up the pea soup. So the contact team, which is not the captain, goes gets out of the rover through the airlock and uh, and they're talking to the guys inside, the guys on the sensors and saying, yeah, this thing is coming this way and it's big. It's, it's, it's five, six hundred feet tall and it's moving and it's moving slowly and that's all we're getting from it. It looks just like a couple of tree log logs. Uh, okay. So these guys are standing out there, and they got all their suit lights and everything, you know, and, and they realize they can't see a damn thing here. So they shut off all the lights on the rover, shut off their suit lights, and it's actually probably still daylight in this super thick atmosphere. This atmosphere has to be thick enough so that it allows buoyancy for this creature. This creature is going to look like an aquatic creature. Um, so uh, they turn off all their lights and let their eyes adapt, and there's just a real faint kind of a gray-blue light coming through the super, super thick haze of the atmosphere. And as they finally adapt their eyes, they see this this thing coming out of the fog. And it's this alien that I've shown you with the, you know, it's an alien. It looks nothing like a person. It's got long kind of fingers that look kind of like uh, anemones. They're not tentacles. They're, they're just sort of almost like, like, almost like kelp or seaweed or something. And this thing just, you know, and it's making all these noises. See, it's the details. See, this is the details that, that I think really sell this thing. This is what this is what people who write science fiction who know the science know how to do. Um, the um, the uh, uh, yeah, Vic Monona, that's a good idea. Um, so here's little pieces of chrome, and these little pieces of chrome are the things that separate you from the from the you know, separate the men from the boys. So you can hear this kind of like the super low sound. It's just barely there. And and the guys who are outside say, you know, we're picking up we're picking up something. It's not making much noise. And then inside the rover, inside the science station, they say, well, you're just hearing, you're hearing, you're only hearing the very highest pitch of the sounds that they're making. They're making ton of noise. It's just all of it is is sub it's infrasonic. And and only the high notes are are, are are high enough for you to hear at the very, very bottom of the human hearing spectrum. 
So while, while we're waiting for this thing to come out of the fog, you know, these guys inside the rover, they're looking at the thing and they're getting all these, you know, these audiographs and stuff. And so the guy who's out there, the head contact guy says, well, compress it and raise it four octaves. So they do. And then they play it back and then they can hear and all this sound and all this chatter and different sources and everything. See, that's, that's just cool. That's what science fiction is. It's, it's, it's when science fiction's working well, for science fiction fans, it gives the science fiction fan a, that's a that's a damn good idea. That's exactly right. Yes, because science fiction is ultimately about people who know what they're who know what they're doing. And when you when you give them something like that, it's cool. So anyway, so this thing reaches down, and and we reach up and we get the you know we get the finger touch and stuff. So here's an alien creature. We got a guy there with a gun, but he's not a couple security guys, but they're not they're not drawing their weapons, and they're certainly not shooting at this thing. And this thing just reaches down and touches, you know, touches the finger and, and kind of gestures. And next thing you know, you're in this gigantic, enormous cave. And there's a little ledge up there. And there's, you see the rover up there. It's about this big. And the headlights go off. And you see little tiny figures with their little suit lights. And poof, they shoot a flare. And this pink flare goes up into this cavern. And it lights up the cavern. And as it comes down, you see these five, six hundred foot tall things just kind of gliding in. This is where they live, you know. So that's the exploration uh, animation. That's fabulous. I think that's just grand. All right. So that's one down. Uh, the um, the naval combat one. Um, we're going to be dealing with. Uh, we're going to have a high level guy whose name is going to be John Boyd. He's going to be more doing the design work. This guy. Uh, that I'm talking about is going to be essentially going to be John Paul Jones, and we're going to meet him at the very beginning. We're not going to we're going to do all of this at the beginning, basically, and um, and so he's running a he's basically got a little he's got a frigate, just a small, lightly armed warship, and uh, and one thing you'll notice immediately about this uh, science fiction franchise is. There is no open space anywhere. When you're outdoors, you're outdoors. But when you're indoors, space is at a premium, and on a spaceship especially. So the, the bridge is not this big open area where people are walking around. It's a it's a bunch of people in a room, and they are, and they are pulling themselves into their chair. It looks about as cramped as the flight deck on a on a commercial jetliner. They got that pretty close actually on Alien, on the first Alien movie. That. That bridge, that stacked bridge, was pretty cool. But we're not going to have these big open spaces anywhere. So the the so the naval animation, the two naval animation, is these guys are in this uh, American cutter, a uh, 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 frigate. Uh, I did not read that political animal, but I I do know my John Paul Jones story because I did it for Daily Wire for America's Forgotten Heroes, the first one I did. So basically. These guys are in a in a relatively small military ship, and they're on their way to um, to an asteroid because there are because there are Chinese freelance miners working those asteroids, and they don't own the asteroids, but they're there. And they're, and by the way. It's not going to be an asteroid field because there are no asteroid fields. Because if these things were formed that dense, then billions of years ago they would have coalesced into a planet. I don't think I, I, I'd be actually curious if somebody in, in the hive mind could answer this question for me. 
and I don't know how you would, but it would be interesting to know. I'd like to know if you stood on any asteroid in the main asteroid belt, whether you would ever get close enough to another asteroid to be able to make out its, its shape, right? That's how big the asteroid belt is. So, yeah, so I got these, got these Chinese uh, miners stripping this asteroid that they don't own. It's not in their space. And my justification for this is that's exactly what China's doing right the second. They're in the, they're in the national waters of every country that has a coastline on the planet, and they are stealing the fish, and they're turning off their transponders. So I'm not, I'm not inventing something. So this frigate starts approaching this asteroid, and sure enough, as it, as it starts bearing down on them, these things start coming off of it like, you know, it's like fleas jumping off a dog, right? They're just, they're all running. And they know that they know that we can't catch them all. And they know that we're not going to fire on them. We're just going to go and give them a sternly worded, you know, talking to. At which point the, the, the frigate will move on and then they'll come back. That's basically how it works. So this guy's got an older, it's an older ship. We're going to bring in all the new ships later. you got to have something to build from. He's basically got this little frigate. He's approaching this asteroid. And by the time these, these miners get them on sensors... Um, and start leaving, we've got a pretty good vector built up and, and we've got a lot more delta V than these guys do. So now the question is, we can chase down any one of these. Which one do we want to chase down? We can't, they're all going in different directions. You can't get them all. So, uh, yeah, well, George says 457 asteroids have satellites. Well played. I'm not talking about seeing its own moon. Um, and so as they start approaching this thing, they see that, uh, that these things are going and all of them are leaving and as the asteroid rotates around there's um there's a hot spot on the surface and we first think did they put a did they put a hab down here and and so they run they run the, the things back to the last rotation of you know, 15 hours ago nothing there that's a ship and it's not running and as they get closer and closer and closer this thing opens fire on them and so we get our little, uh, we get a little space combat. We get lasers in space that are not visible or audible. They don't go, pshh. they're just on their frigate. And all of a sudden they're looking at their sensors and the screens just go completely, you know, red, white or red or whatever with the dazzle. And then on the side of the hull, there's this dancing image and burns that away, you know. It's like, oh, we got an actual fight here. It's the first time I've ever turned to fight. It's just a gunboat, it's nothing serious. And, you know, you get, okay, you know, you start to, you start putting out the defensive stuff, you start putting out the glitter clouds to diffuse the, the, the things, you start putting rail, rail guns uh, out there and stuff, and you, and you just kind of, you know, you just kind of have a little conflict. We end up blowing that thing up. Um, average distance between two asteroids in the asteroid belt is about 600,000 miles, which means that not only do you never see another asteroid when you're in the heart of the asteroid belt, in terms of its shape, you almost certainly don't even see the spot. You don't even see the the, the, the the tiny faint star with the naked eye. That's the real asteroids. So there we go. We get a little bit of we get a little bit of um, space combat, and we can see what the space combat looks like. We get to see our cool navy guys. We get to see that they're kind of in an older ship and, and a little undergunned and they're not expecting a big fight. We get to see that the Chinese are continuing to escalate the situation, you know, politically, and that's two down. Um, 
the uh, okay. Sometimes I get my best ideas because I, I see an asset, a 3D asset, and I think, well, that's really great. How do I work this into the story? And I'll give you an example. I saw this really, really sleek looking ship, right? This really, 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 and so the interior and everything, terrific, terrific asset. And, um, and I thought, okay, wow, that's cool. And it's got, you know, it's got landing gear, but it doesn't have wings. And it certainly doesn't have vector thrust. So I said to myself, well, I can't really use that, I guess. Because even if I put wheels on it, I can't put it on a runway. It's got no wings. It's not a lifting body. Damn it. I would really like to have used this thing. Because the political story, this is the third one now, the, the story of the founders, right? Takes place on a private island that's owned by who I hope will be Nick Searcy, who became the fifth richest man in the known universe because he found the platinum asteroid after years of prospecting out there by himself. Just a real regular guy who happens to have several trillion dollars. Um, and so I wanted, so he's got his own little island on Earth. Earth is fine. By the way, by the way, by the way, let's just get this out of my system. I mentioned this before. Not only are we not going to do a the earth has died and we all must leave. The earth is dying and we all must go. The people are sterile. The planet, we were killing. No, I'm so bloody sick of that. I'm so sick. It's just a lie. The dirtiest the planet ever has been was probably in the 50s or 60s. Once we, our generation turned that around, the Great Lakes used to be dead. The, the, the was it the Cayuga River caught fire? Jets used to leave these black smoke streaks and cars used to, no, they, no, the earth is, is fine. The cities are, are destroyed. But the Earth is fine. This guy's got his own little man-made island. I figure if the Chinese can do it today, dredge an island, then a guy with a ton of money can do it 250 years from now. Hey, this nice little tiny island. He's got all this really, really, really cool, clean, um, utopia kind of architecture. So they're having a meeting there. So back to the, to the asset. I thought, okay. Uh, all throughout this thing, we're going to have vectored lift things, but... Uh, as, as I learned from my uh, friend Bert Rutan, it's kind of stupid to use thrust and delta V and fuel when aerodynamics will do the work for you. It's easier to move something through the air than it is to move it straight up. Lift. So I thought, how the hell can I use this thing? I can't put it on a runway. It's not got enough wing area. And then I realized, oh, 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 here's a, here's a pretty cool idea. So in the third animation, the one about the political founders, it starts out with this super sleek thing climbing out. And you see, you see New York, you know, dropping fast. This thing is going like, it's going like the thing in, in uh, Top Gun, right? It, it's going like the, what, I don't forget, it was called, the hypersonic plane that was, was they call it Dark Star? Anyway, Mach 10, right? So this thing is climbing out of New York, and you see the, the a, a male pilot, a female pilot, co-pilot, and they're up there and they're talking to ATC, you know, and and they got their clearance, and it's basically okay, you know, contact, you know, uh, contact. I guess New York departure, you know, and switch frequencies, you know, and he says, you know, whatever the call sign is, 
you know, 16,000 climbing flight level 850. That's 85,000 feet. That doesn't exist today. And then he gets, says, okay, Roger, he says, I can clear you direct if you want to save you a little time. Yeah, great, thanks. So, so this thing just going like a bat out of hell. And they're going from New York to the South Pacific. And it's going to take them about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And you can see inside the cabin, you can see the, the moving map thing, right? This thing is just hauling ass. Because it's a gorgeous, 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 rich-looking corporate jet hypersonic looking thing so how do i deal with the landing right it doesn't have thrusters it can't it can't land vertically it can't land like an airplane because it needs a runway and i thought well, i know what i'll do i will now here's we're going to use this all the place it just keeps coming back i just love this idea i had this idea yesterday so as this thing makes the approach to the island chain you see there's a bunch of like poles kind of high-tech poles going out for a mile or two in into the distance and it's above the surface of the water obviously and and the thing comes in and it makes its approach and it and it takes these things as if they're a, a, a runway and it comes in it gets at a certain altitude you get all these displays going in the cockpit and what happens is the vehicle gets captured by magnetic fields it's captured by magnetic fields, and once the magnetic fields have really got it, the guy comes back on the throttle, throttle goes to zero, and then in the exact opposite of a magnetic railgun, they just slow the thing down. And then when it gets to the end of these rows of things, it just kind of floats over, turns around, does a 180, and it moved over on a platform, and down come the little landing legs, and congratulations, you just went from New York to South Pacific at Mach 15. Um, it's, a, it's a catch. And then, of course, that means you can launch them that way. And that brings up all kinds of cool chrome. Right? I've never seen anybody do a railgun electromagnetic landing. They used to do, even in like, what was it? Uh, uh, when worlds collide, didn't they launch a rocket? It wasn't a magnetic thing, but they launched it off a rail, right? So this thing just comes down. It's just caught by the magnetic fields. And it's slowed to a stop. And then when it's time to go, they fire up the, the thrusters, and then the thing throws them out that way. That technology exists in our universe, so now we can apply that all throughout the entire universe, and then we can say things like, you've got guys at the airport, you've got a, you've got a hard runway for, um, for orbital vehicles with wings, okay, long, flat runway, don't, don't see any reason why runways would go away. You've got, the, you've got the magnetic rail thing to catch things. You've got magnetic rail thing to launch things. And, and you, then you have the vectored thrust guys who basically, they, they don't re-enter the atmosphere in terms of high speed. They just, they've got enough delta. I'm going to say engineering-wise, we can get all the ISP we want to. They just basically just come down on thrusters. But, but they're coming down to, going up and coming down. And the thing that's really cool about this is you would have, you would have on a per-vehicle basis, a guy in the airport facilities, in the tower or whatever, but basically what they're doing is they would do something is almost identical to what the, the, cat, the catapult operators do on an aircraft carrier. And that is how much acceleration does this particular individual vehicle need? If it's got wings, it only needs, a, you know, half a G, one G laterally for two miles. Then it starts to fly off. It's possible 
that you could take something and give it a, a 200G launch. But you're not going to have people on board that because that'll just kill them. I remember my friend who was it? Was it Phil? I don't know if you're watching Phil. Phil would know. Phil's usually watching from the planetarium days. It was either it was either you, Phil, or it was or Doug. I think we were taking a look at at uh, we're talking about the um, the Sprint missile. Back in the '60s, there was an uh, an anti-aircraft, an anti-missile missile called the Sprint, and they called it the Sprint because this thing. If you've ever seen, you should look it up on YouTube. Look up Sprint Missile Launch in real time. You cannot believe that anything could go from a stop to going that fast. It's like on the ground, and it's gone. It's it's amazing. We did this in the '60s, and and I think I think it was Doug or somebody said somebody said, man, that'd be awesome to ride on the on the front of a uh, happy birthday, Eric. Uh, happy birthday to you, Eric. Uh, it's always great to have you here. Congratulations. Uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy your teenage years. Um, and, and and then somebody else, because I thought, yeah, that'd be cool to ride on the Sprint missile. And somebody said, you might as well be standing in front of the Sprint, sprint missile, you know, because you're going to take 250 Gs. You're going to be you'd be paced on the, on the back bulkhead of this thing. But if you have this railgun thing, you can not only catch things. Now, you, yeah, you could catch things as long as there was some kind of a any kind of control over it. But then that you could you could launch aircraft. You could launch things like the hypersonic thing that don't have a lot of lift. They're going to need a G and a half or a G for two miles or less until finally they get enough um, until they finally get enough uh, thrust going. And frankly, as I I'm, just as I'm thinking this through, since you can play with magnetic fields any way you want to, you get a vehicle like a like a essentially like a like the uh, like the um, the uh, the vehicle in uh, 2001: Space Odyssey. I can never remember if it's the Ares or the Orion. I want to say it's the Orion, the the Pan Am space clipper thing, right? So you launch this thing down the rail, and it's got to go further because it's got to go faster. You don't want to give it three Gs or five Gs because you got passengers on board, right? And then what you could do is, as this thing's moving down the rail, each individual magnetic station down the rail could slightly increase its its magnetic charge and you would essentially have a, a, a ramp and you could make that ramp as long or as steep as you wanted to and once you got the thing to a certain alpha once you got a certain angle of attack then then you just thrust your way out of there you can make a brick fly if you got enough thrust you've seen a harpoon missile go the harpoons essentially got no wings you just got fins so how's the thing going along it's not like a tomahawk. Those things have wings that pop out. The harpoon just flies. It's vector thrust. You can do anything with vector thrust. And I just realized all of my problems are over. All the cool things I want to use, I can use. I can use space planes. I can use shuttles. I can use vertical things. And I can use a lot of these cool guys because if they're out in space, they can land gently on the uh, surface of anything with low gravity. But they can actually land in these magnetic things, and I thought that was a damn clever idea. Um, so, the third story. So you're on board this thing, and it's got a nice cabin in there. You know, they're serving, you know, they're serving drinks, and they're making their final approach into the South Pacific. And and uh, you know, these guys who are on board are are they're the founding fathers. They're very very smart, very rich, powerful people. And they're making their approach in on the Pacific, and there's something that looks like a kind of a like a typhoon there. And and it's kind of in the way of their approach. 
thing, you know? And are, are we going to divert around it? No, we're not going to divert around it. We're going to go through this typhoon at Mach 4 or 5 or something. And so they make this magnetic catch landing on this guy's island. And as the as the, 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 the founders, men and women, powerful people, it's a secret meeting, very secret meeting. As they're kind of filing out, the captain and the co-pilot are standing at the door and, and, and somebody going by, this dialogue just writes itself for me, I did that yesterday. Uh, somebody's going by the door and said, hey, yeah, I'm just curious, you know, we, we, I saw in the moving map, we came through, a, it looked like a typhoon, we didn't really feel a thing. Said, no, sir, when you're doing Mach 10 and you have essentially zero wing loading, turbulence doesn't mean anything to us. The wing loading, that's what makes the thing go up and down. Right? There is no wing loading. It doesn't have wings. It's not saying it wouldn't be a little bumpy, but it wouldn't be. You, you would hardly notice it, I think. I'll have to ask Bert about that one, but it seems to make sense to me because I know that the lighter the wings are loaded, the more of a whoop kind of thing, and on a jet it's kind of <laughs> but in a little airplane it's like, whoa. So that goes off, and then finally, like, another guy's coming out, and the pilot and the co-pilot are standing there, and the, and the guy says, that was butter. That landing was butter. And the captain says, well, thank you, sir. We, we, we do our best. Then the guy, the executive guy says, I've done some of these magnetic catch things, and I thought we were shot down, frankly. You know, that's how rough it was. And the captain looks him right in the eye and says, well, sir, that's why we have co-pilots on board. It's not in case we become incapacitated. We just need somebody to, to blame the bad landings on. He says, no, is that, is that right? He looks over at the, the female co-pilot. Is that, that right? Says, yes, sir, absolutely. That's exactly right. And, and the reason we have captains is so that we have somebody who can steal the credit for the good landings that we make. And and he goes like, and he walks off, and then these two kind of smile at each other, and he goes a little pack, and then they go back and they, they close down the ship. It's like, okay, fabulous. It's just a nice little piece of business there. It's a nice piece of business. So they get on board this, they get on this guy's private island, and they do this whole big deal about, you know, scanning them and making sure there's, you know, and then they get into like this electronically sealed bubble, and, and basically they're sitting there and they're watching TV, and, and, and here it comes. It's like, okay, so this is, uh, this is what we released. Um, this is what we released 18 hours ago. And on the screen, you see this, it's kind of like a news thing. It's more like a science report. It's not meant for general broadcast. And basically, the, the narrator is essentially saying, uh, somewhat disappointing news from the, uh, from the first returns from the such and such system, uh, you know, the probes that we sent out there. Uh, we were hoping for a little better than this, but turns out that the, uh, the number two planet, which was discovered 200 years ago back in 2109, uh, is, uh, is just a, a rocky a supergiant, uh, doesn't have a breathable atmosphere, looks some oxygen, methane. And stuff. It's basically, they're making it sound as much like as they can, but, but it's like, this is disappointing, and this one was disappointing, and this was disappointing, we didn't see this. And it's like, so it's just an announcement. And then the guy said, so that's what we sent out. And then another guy says, so what did we really find? Said, well, here's what we really found. And then you see the screen, and it turns out that planet is not this rocky, you know, frozen ball. It's a, it's paradise. It's, it's, a, it's a water world, 95% water, nothing but these atolls. And it's just, it's just, it's just perfect. It's perfect. 
and they basically say, you think we can keep this under our hands? I said, well, not forever, but for long enough. And then they say, and we've got ships going to, that we launched nine years ago, and one of those should be arriving at the, the next one in six months, and the other one 14 months after that. So they're sending back, they're, they're paying for these probes, manned probes to these colony stars, the stars are gonna make up the colony. And from this little scene, we learn that these guys are paying for the probes and that they are intentionally, significantly downgrading the feasibility of these things. They're far away. There's no Stargate line there. So what we wanna do is we wanna make sure that nobody else goes running to these things while we are getting set up there. And it's basically what um, what I think happened, you know, with the with the American colonies, right? I mean, New World was discovered by the Spanish and, and Spanish, Portuguese, the French, French got the interior, but the British got the whole East Coast. How did they do that? They they got there, they were first firstest with the mostest, right? There were enough Englishmen went there fast so that by the time the rest of these guys began to realize what was actually there in the New World. The, the, the East Coast of the United States was British from Maine to Georgia. So that's the political thing. Three down, two to go. Uh, exploration, yes. Navy, yes. Founding Fathers, yes. Okay, uh, here's the fourth one. The fourth one is the uh, is the uh, the story of um, uh, yeah. The, uh, Eric Blake says the Vikings called um, the beautiful uh, island Green Island. They called it Iceland, and the ice-covered island they called Greenland. It was all just a big publicity, just a just a feint. Okay, so um, so here's the fourth story. Uh, I love this story too. So you're on board. Um, a merchant ship. I'm going to take a quick little aside here. Yeah, I know. I told you. Uh, you've seen a lot of the ship demos that I've used. They're flat. I've done the whole magnetic field thing on the ship to justify a, a flat thing, you know, magnetic, highly refined magnetic gravity. It's not magnetic boots, just you, you wear this skin-tight suit and, and it functions sort of like gravity. Your insides are still weightless, but everything else feels pretty much right. But there's been something at the back of my mind tugging, and that is that I really want something that looks like, you know, spindly fuel tanks and spinning centrifuges. In any event, you got, you got the first fourth story is the story of the of the merchant crew, and they're on board a relatively small ship, and they're making their approach for the gate, right, and, uh, and so we, we can see on a display, and it's still out there. And they're talking to the gate, and the gate's maybe, you know, at this point of maybe a half a light second away or something. It's still a significant difference, distance. Um, the, uh, so the captain of this little merchant ship that we're on basically makes the radio call, and we get those radio calls just right, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, this has all been scheduled. They've, they've, paid their, they've paid their gate fee. They're going someplace down the gate, down the gate line. And so, while they're still hours away, they hand off sh the control of the ship to the gate. 
So the, they make the radio call, the gate acknowledges the handoff, and then all of a sudden you hear this and you see outside the ship and all the thrusters are firing and the thrusters are all firing in, in sequence. These, 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 these. They're firing in sequence because the, the computers on the gate need to know how massive that ship is and, and how, how much effect do we get out of these thrusters because they're gonna have to they're gonna have to time this thing to the millisecond and they're gonna get them very close. So they do this on every ship, right? Every ship that comes in, once they get the control, they just run the thrusters and the telemetry comes back and it gives them an idea of how much the mass is and how effective the thrusters are and so on and so forth. And then the guy says, uh, hey, uh, you know, whatever the name of the ship is gonna be, uh, your 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 number 14 thruster, your, your, your after rear thruster, it's at 62% of the next lowest one and they're not terribly well balanced. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we're working on that. It's been giving us some trouble. Are we still good? He said, yeah, you're good. We, you know, we get you through there, but you might want to have that looked at before you, you know, before you go on this one. You bet we will. It's apparently been going on a long time and I'm money to fix it. So <clears throat> on this fourth video, we see these things getting closer and these guys are looking down at their screen. Some of the ships are behind them. Some of them are in front of them. But what's basically happening is they're all starting to come together and they're starting to come together laterally too. And then one of the guys says, whatever you do, don't look out the right window. So the guy immediately looks out the right window and he goes, oh my God. And it's the Centaurus. I've shown this model before. It's this huge, ugly, enormous beast. And the guy goes, oh my God, it's a, it's a freaking Centaurus. And, 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 it's, and it's getting closer. It's a speck right now. It's just like this big, just starting to show some details. And, and as they're starting to get this thing together, and this guy wants one so bad. So the whole first season of the Merchant Crew thing is how much they want. This guy especially wants one of these gigantic, big, ugly, it looks like the Nostromo, right? Looks like the Nostromo. And this thing's getting closer and closer. It says, man, I always wanted to see one that's, you know, this close. And it's like, and, and now the countdown to the gate is getting down to, you know, eight minutes and stuff. And, and this thing gets closer and closer. And he said, you know, it's okay. You know, I wanted to see it close. I'm not sure I want to see it this close. And it keeps getting closer and closer and closer. And you begin to think, my God, you could actually reach out with a, with a broom and, and touch this thing. And, and then you got a shot of all of these, all of these ships. They're just compressed into like a disc. You know, they're all, they're all at the center length and they're all as close together as you can get them. And now the ring is visible, it's just a little speck, a little speck up there. And the countdown clock is running and everybody's looking at this thing and then the speck is like just like there. I'll do it for the camera. It's a speck and it kind of goes, boom, like that. And they go through this thing at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. The second they go through this thing, there's this flash of light, and you get this great shot where you're on one side of the ring, and you see all these ships coming in, and they go through this through this ring, there's this flash, and then nothing comes out the other side. Then you go back on the bridge, and you see, boom. So they get to the, the, the distance they can do is maybe seven-tenths of a light year. So there's a string of these things, nine of them, to get between these two stars. So they disappear through the Earth ring, they come out on one ring on the other side, and then they go through real space for some distance to tweak, slightly tweak the angles, gotta be, gotta be within nanoradians, and then that, they go through that gate and that gate fires, and, and, but from the bridge you see this boom, and there's another gate, boom, and there's another gate, boom, and, boom, 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 and boom, finally there they are. And then the second they get there, all of these ships immediately start start breaking out. It's like a shotgun blast, right? They just 
to start breaking out and breaking out and breaking out and a long, much, much shorter than the time needed to get them together. Once they get there, you hear the air traffic control on the destination thing starts returning controls of the ship. You're free, free to navigate. You're on the, you're on the, you know, the, you're on the Alpha 2 approach for, for this moon and off you go. So we sh that shows us that there's a group of people. They don't have much money as far as this kind of business goes, but they are moving stuff interstellar that shows you how the Stargates work. It shows you a new look at Stargates. You never, ever, ever see a wormhole tunnel. Never. Flash. You're here, for and then you're there. And and it's a visually striking image, and, and you get a sense of, like, whoever wrote this stuff knows something about air traffic control. You know? So that's four. Here's the fifth one. Uh, this is the story is the one I keep coming home to. So the fifth one, I think, is going to be the one we're going to spend an awful lot of time with, and that's the Homesteader story. So... This one's going to be expensive and tough to do, but, but I really think it's worth it. Um, it's a, the thing about the gates is they're railway lines. You have to construct them. They take decades to build these things. Once you built it, off you go. But you have to build it. And, and with any other railway line, if you've got a railway and you've got a railway that goes out to this point, you need to get to that point. You don't have to go from here to there. You can go the rail to here, and then from here you have to build a new, new railroad. So I'm going to study a lot about how railroads were actually built, and I'm going to look at the history of, of railroads and, and, and the strategic uses of railroads. But basically, it is a, is a pretty much a one-to-one -one, uh, analogy of, uh, of uh, railroads. Uh, Marisha said, how do you deal with the jeep forces at near light speeds? We're not going at, well, in the Stargate, you're not going at anything like light speeds. It's 186,000 miles a second. Uh, these guys are going to be doing 180,000 miles an hour or less. They've got to get through that gate in two milliseconds or whatever. So that's just, you know, it takes days, probably weeks, to get everything into position and everything in the right vector, and it's extraordinarily complex, and it is time to the millisecond. Um, they're in space for this. It's got nothing to do with their Mach numbers or... The definition of a Mach number is speed through an atmosphere, so because the Mach is the speed of sound at that particular altitude or density. Okay, so here's the final story. So um, I've got this, got this family of four. We won't include this in the Kickstarter thing, but the backstory is that they live in Los Angeles, and uh, and he's a high pressure um, uh, fluids guy, maybe working in oil refinery or something like that, and he's convinced. Well, first of all, the daughter's getting into real trouble, and, and the city life continues to deteriorate. And it gets more and more like a hive, and she said, we've got to get out of here, leaving Los Angeles. <laughs> Imagine. Um, uh, so, um, so this is backstory. You don't see this in the clip, but I'll tell about it in the fundraising pitch. So the daughter's getting into real trouble, and, 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 and life is becoming unbearable, and he's convinced that he can make a living as a, hydro, as a, hydraulics, as a hydrologist, in other words, he's convinced that he can make a living finding water and delivering it. Finding it, drilling it, pumping it, filtering it. This is, this is the stuff he knows. And he figures that's a, it's a pretty good skill to have out there on the frontier, and he's right. So, the fam so I figured, all right, so let's say this is really going to happen. In fact, this is how I write the whole series, right? Let's assume this is really going to have to happen. What do we have to do? What would the steps be? Well, there would be incentive for governments or corporations 
to bring people from Earth out to the frontier because the frontier is lots and lots and lots of real estate and very little actual talent. So subsidies and, and you know, and all the rest of it. Um, so uh, Eric, uh, uh, GK Master says, don't give away too much in the pitch. It's, it's taken me an hour and a half to pitch this thing. The pitch is going to be eight minutes. Except a picture's worth a thousand words. I don't have the pictures yet. So, uh, so the family, as a family, although the daughter's mostly just sitting there, steam coming out of her ears, they have to decide where they want to go. And I assume it would be something very much like in the military, where you have, this is my first choice, this is my second choice, third choice, all of this, right, down the list. And so everybody wants to go to the nice planets. And that means that they don't need as many people there, so it's harder to get to the nice planets. And furthermore, when you get to one of the nice planets, it's harder to find a job because there's more people there. And nobody wants to go to the hell holes where the pay is better and, and you are guaranteed to get your assignment to the hell hole. And then this family has to decide between these two extremes, what, where do they want to go? They know, they, don't, they know that both of the extremes on this spectrum are, are out for them. What, what do they do? And they pick a planet, and I gave this a fair amount of thought. Uh, I have to check the star map. I'm sure it's there somewhere. Uh, but they have to go to a planet. They have to go to a system that's uh, either type A or type F star, which is hotter than the sun. So it's OBAFGKM. OB a fine girl kiss me. O's are the super hot, bright blue stars. B a, F, G is the sun, yellow star, K is orange star, M is a red star, just total energy. So we need a star that has more energy than the sun is putting out, hotter star. And that would mean more ultraviolet and all the rest of it. It also means that the life zone is bigger because the more radiation you're putting out, the, the larger the Goldoxin is. So one of these planets, one of them, is in a pretty highly elliptical orbit around a F-type star. And there's essentially nothing else left in the solar system. There's a couple little things, but it's clearly a captured planet. It's not, it's not, it's just, it's just captured uh, planemo, I think it's what they call them. It's big. Surface gravity is probably 1.2. And, and the reason I like this, and, and the great thing is, I could probably do it in Space Engine. I know I can do it in Universe Sandbox. In Universe Sandbox, I can build the planet, I can take the correct star, and then I can dick around with the orbit until I get exactly what I want. And so their choices basically come down to, as a family, you can go someplace really, really hot, or you can go someplace really, really cold, and they decide, well, we're going to go someplace that's kind of both. So this planet that they're heading for is a big planet, and it's got a highly eccentric orbit. And the thing about an eccentric orbit is that since the area and the period all have it's one of Kepler's laws. But basically, the way the orbit works is when you get close to the sun at perihelion, you're moving very, very fast. And then as you get further and further, you're slower and slower and slower and slower. And then you get to your apogee or aphelion, I guess. And then you come back down and faster, 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 faster. That's, that's what the orbit looks like. Um, so they decide they want this planet. But by sheer luck if they go to this planet 
they are they're going to be there where those relatively brief temperate periods are ended and it's heading out into the cold it's going to get colder every day it's going to be cold when they get there but it's going to become killing cold in in six months and in and in a year or two it's going to be horrific and then three years from now or whatever it'll start to warm up a bit and then then you'll have a year of pleasant then you'll have two months of everybody in the shelter who's burning anyway you get the idea so that, that's just the backstory on the planet but the scene I want to have is I want to have a scene where it's not the main starport it's a remote supply depot it's like it's like if you think about it it's like a forward base in Vietnam or something right that's 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 what it is all the buildings are somewhat temporary looking they're pre everything's prefabricated habs and so on but the main thing I want is I want just this endless endless bustle of activity it's non-stop motion and and nobody knows where anything's going. No, nothing's organized. It's just lots and lots of Marston matting, and constantly you just walk. Well, so the family gets off of this vehicle. No runway there. Everything's everything's vertical takeoff and landing, either with thrust or with rotors or whatever. So you see the family of four coming off of this transport, right, with a bunch of other people, twenty other people. And they know where they're supposed to go because they got their little brochure thing. And as they're walking along, you know, there's just everything is in motion, everything. And and all of a sudden you hear like it sounds like gunshots behind, them, like doo, 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 like that, really, really loud, and, and, and you know, almost like hit the deck. And and you can see the regulars don't even flinch, right? They don't even flinch at all. What is it? Is somebody shooting? It's like no, it's a sonic booms from something else that's coming into land. Um, so they're trying to find this particular office, and they find the office. And they walk in there, and there's a sign that says, um, please wait here until the next available agent. And so they wait there behind this line. And there's a guy who's busy. He's really busy, maybe one or two other people. And while they're waiting, people kind of come in and go, go right up to the guy's desk, ask him a question, and then they go right back out again. So he just comes And they watch this happen, you know, a couple, three, four, five times. And finally, the guy says, you know, we're in line here. And and the guy behind the desk goes, yeah, I know that that sounds just kind of a just kind of a practical joke that we that we uh, play. Um, we're a little slow today, but sometimes if things are really, we'll take bets on how long it takes for somebody to walk up to the table. So what can I do for you? So basically, it's he's just, you know, he's just. The rules don't apply here, right? Nothing from that they're used to from the city applies on the frontier. So dad walks up and says, hi, I'm this guy, this guy. Well, that's tremendous achievement, sir. What can I do for you? Uh, well, I'm here to pick up uh, this uh, this rover that we bought. And here's my bill of sale. And here's a, you don't need any of that. Do you have the registration number? And he said, yeah, here it is. I said, okay. And he says, it's in lot 17D or whatever. It's out the back. And he gives him some directions and stuff. And, and he's got a picture of the rover. He bought the thing on Earth. He's not bringing it with him, obviously. He, Got on the space internet, which travels, the information travels in little pellets through the stargates, so you don't have to worry about the slower than light thing. And he's got, and he bought, family took their life savings, bought this rover with enough room for a family of four, barely. A large Winnebago kind of thing. So they walk back out of this hab building, and it's really cold, and they have to wear rebreathers, but they notice that the locals aren't wearing them because the it basically, surface pressure is what you would get on Earth at 
14, 15,000 feet. Thin air, you need oxygen, but if you live there long enough, you don't. The, the, the Sherpas don't need oxygen because when you live in a low pressure environment, your body makes more red blood cells. So the locals are, are, are walking along and the locals don't seem to be very heavily dressed either. So they're acclimated to the low pressure and they're acclimated to the cold. But our family is is cold and they have these you know these rebreathers and stuff and so you know their eyes are hurting because it's so cold everything's moving around and and by the way one thing i'm gonna i'm gonna put in this thing everywhere everywhere and i've never seen it before and it's so obvious i'm gonna put robots everywhere and they're not gonna be droids either they're not gonna be droids and they're not gonna be androids they're gonna be robots and they're going to be everywhere they're going to be carrying things they're going to be building things they're going to be scooping things they're going to be everywhere and every one of them not to say that every one of them is unique but this is a construction robot and this is a lifting robot and that's a messenger robot that looks like the boston robotics dog and it goes leaping these things just moving everywhere right but i just want this family to be completely overwhelmed just overwhelmed by this constant chaos that's the word for it nothing they're looking for somebody who's controlling this they're looking for somebody who's putting some order. There is no order. These things just keep landing. People are getting off it. They've already made their own connections. It's just it's just overwhelming to them, right? So they're, they're, they're walking along and they're looking down these rows and there's like these maybe these prefab hangers or something. These really crappy looking hangers, you know, just dumped there, that kind of thing. They find the thing they're looking for. And we've already seen when the guy's showing it to the, the guy behind the counter, he's showing him a picture of the rover. And the rover looks like it's got some age on it, you know, it's a used rover, certainly, they can't afford a new one, it's got some things and scratches on it, you know, but it looked like a good bargain. So they get to the hangar they're supposed to be in, and they turn the corner, or maybe it's behind the hangar, and, and they turn the corner and they see this rover in this place, and it's the same model, but this thing is just trashed. It's got six wheels, but one of the wheels is missing. It's just gone. There's no wheel there. There's no rim there. There's no tire there. It's on. It's gone. And and the hab module, which sits on the back, is on space deadwood Marusha dark for the wind. That's exactly, precisely what it is. It's deadwood. That's exactly the model I'm looking for. Congratulations. The hab thing that's supposed to be on the back is off to the side. And this thing, the the the, the windows are, are are all are all crazed. And and and. And it's a and, and it's leaking oil and and the paint is and the guy the guy just can't believe it right he can't believe it he walks up and checks like the plate numbers and stuff and it turns out that's the thing he bought but it, it's just garbage it's garbage so dad goes huffing back to this guy's office you know this guy's like the local business guy he's you know he's kind of a lawman and he's got some kind of minimal authority right he's obviously he's not a, nobody's in control he's the swear engine right that in fact. That, that's exactly who he is. So dad and the family go huffing back there and say, hey man, you know, we gotta have a, uh, talk about something. Yes, sir, what can I do for you? Well, this is what we bought and that's not what's out there. And I wanna know where, where ours is. He said, well, that is yours. And he says, well, that's not what we paid for. He said, well, that's what you got. And he says, we, we can't even use this thing. What am I supposed to do? And, and then the guy says, well, I suppose you could get back on one of these landers, get back to, uh, you know, landville and then, uh, get on a transport and go back to earth and then contact the people walk into their office back in los angeles and tell them that you got ripped off we don't deal with that st we don't do lawsuits out here we don't have the time and we don't have the people so that thing in that lot is yours 
you can sell it, you can fix it, you can leave it. I don't care. It's none of my business. Yes, sir, what can I do for you? Somebody else walking in, right? So now these guys are like, oh, fuck. Sorry, we're, we're, we're stuck here. So they walk back out to this thing, and and mom goes into the, the hab section, normally sits on the back, is off on the side, and and she's always been kind of positive. Dad's Dad's a good man. He has a temper problem. He's smoke coming out of his ears and and she goes the mom goes to the um to the hab and opens the door to the airlock and it's well, it's kind of musty in here and then she opens the inner door to the airlock and they both start the mom and the daughter just start vomiting because inside this thing somebody has left food or whatever and it's been in there for five months the whole thing is just it's just sickening it's reeking and now you get to see grit, right? And after they finished throwing up, Mom was like, okay, we're going to need something. And she gets in there, and they start cleaning this thing out. And then Dad starts walking around trying to find somebody who can lift the cab and put it on the back of the vehicle the way it's supposed to be. No, not the remains of the last owner, John Pershing. It's a nice thought, but, you know, this is, it's not, we'll find that, but just not here. There's too many people here. Uh, not someone, some, the food, just the food went bad, right? And and so she starts, you know, just starts bagging this stuff if she can. And and dad and the boy go walking back out, and they're trying to find a guy who can put this thing on there. And he runs into this guy. There's a couple of robots out there that, that are like much bigger versions of the cargo loaders and aliens, and there's nobody running them. They're just, they're robots. And he talks to this guy, says, listen, I need this on, on the hab. Can you do that? Yeah, we can do that for you. Sure, absolutely. You do it. Probably get to an hour, two hours, maybe tops. Uh, what's that going to cost? That'll be, uh, be mm, which one is it? You know, it says one, uh, yeah, probably three, four thousand, somewhere in there. Three or four thousand, you see. That's what it's going to cost, pal. So you want me to do it or not? So it turns out that, that already they've not only not gotten what they wanted, but they are out, they are spending money that they don't have in order to just make ends meet. So all of this money that he was going to spend on things like better suits, you know, all this other stuff he needed, gone. Gone. And the scene ends when you see them driving out of this town on a six-wheel rover with five wheels. That's the, that's the homesteader scene. But if things are in constant motion, cranes and, you know, and things, you know, and, and, and blast effects and dust and all the rest of this stuff, that to me, I hadn't made the connection to Deadwood until two days ago. And then I did, and then I realized that's what works. It's my favorite show of all time, by far. Um, the... Uh, that sense of like, where are we? You know, they're not naive enough to think that the, that the streets were paved with gold, but it's much, much, much worse than they thought. It's much more rugged, and that's I think the experience that most of the immigrants who came to America had. They thought it was going to be certainly when they went west, the cities were crowded and and there was no work for them. And if they decided to get on a wagon train, then okay, it's going to take you two months. An iron rimmed wooden wheels with no real suspension and, and maybe you'll be killed by Indians and maybe you'll get snowed in and 
who knows so that's uh, that's it that's what I need now uh, question is how do I get from here to there um, Bill are these home seekers going to be connected to the revolution colonies yes they are they're going to be um, they're going to be I've got a, I've got a there's a lot of little details maybe not little that I have to work out in terms of how this actually happens but after two or three seasons they'll move but they'll do at least two or three seasons here and and maybe they won't I don't know this may be the this may be the first this may be the the planet in the colonies that is closest to yeah that's what I'll do this one is the one that's closest to the existing network so it's Massachusetts or whatever because I want them to hate this place and then after a year I want them to love this place and after three years I want them to this is their home they're not leaving um, the nice thing about that uh, ellipt uh, that highly eccentric orbit is that okay so they, they I get to have them walking around outside right and they go off and we're not talking about the fundraiser now um, uh, Carrie Lake one is she the uh, she the Republican just I'm sure yes I just sometimes I don't know the names good we're gonna get some so the Republican in Arizona uh, won her race today that's great okay so anyway just to wrap this uh, dog and pony show up um, this guy goes out and he gets on the radio they've got you know they've got Starlink they put that in that's no big deal He's basically got his sign out, the you know, electronic sign hanging out there, an electronic shingle, and he's, I'll get the questions. And um, and he says, uh, you know, hey, you got water problems? You tired tired of tanking in your water? There's permafrost on this planet. And I get to it, and I can I can get you set up with your own independent water supply. I can drill it, I can store it, I can filter it, and run it right into your house, and uh, and reasonable terms, and so on and so forth. So this guy's got a business plan, and he works his tail off. And over time, he starts doing really well. I was reading. I'm going to steal this from Dan Abnett. I'm reading some more 40K. He was talking about a planet that had a highly... Uh, no, it wasn't an elliptical orbit. He talked about a planet where there were these like infrequent rains, and all of a sudden there's like torrential rains for like a couple days, and then it just completely stops. And, and somewhere around the third season, after we've established that they've gotten where they need to get by hard work, and the daughter, who gives a damn about nothing, takes an interest in, in rocks for some reason, because they're interesting rocks, and she's got nothing else to do, so she actually becomes a pretty capable amateur geologist. And then as the planet starts coming around to the warm part again, again, we're talking season three here, something like that, all of this permafrost melts. It comes running down the hills, and and the humidity goes up and you get clouds for the first time in two, three years, you know. And these torrential flash floods happen. And I want the daughter, again, year three now, who's not gone back to Earth that she swore she would do on her 18th birthday. Uh, I want her poking around there in one of the rovers. They can afford a couple of them now. And I want her out there looking in one of these gullies. And she looks down and, um, you know, and she's got a little pan and she looks at the pan and there's a lot of gold there a lot of gold and nobody had the faintest idea that that, that would be something they've got the good sense to not tell anybody about it yet 
when they do tell people about it after they've gotten a bunch of it, then everybody else used to be their friends are really pissed off. You're pissed off because I told you there's gold there? No, we're pissed off because you didn't tell us earlier. That kind of thing. Um, but now, now they're actually rich. Uh, but you got to show them working their way up to prosperity and making it. They're not speculators. And when the gold starts coming in, then you get a, a season or two of this place just being completely crowded and everybody hating it now. They don't like it anymore. There's all these new people everywhere and they don't give a shit about anything. Excuse my language again. And then, you know, just when they're getting ready to move because there's so many people, then the gold runs out and the gold rush ends. Everybody leaves. There's all this gear there. They trash most of it, keep some of it, and the story keeps going on. And then those of you who are watching now, your grandchildren can be writing these stories, you know, 50, 60 years from now, and we just keep rolling this thing and just roll it on forever. That's the plan. All right. So that only took me... Oh, God. That only took me two hours, one hour and 45 minutes. So we're not going to get through all the questions. I'll be happy if I can get through the billlittle.com questions. Anyway, I know I talk about this a lot. I like talking about it, and I like talking about it with you guys because when I talk about it, makes it real for me and it also gives me a chance to get these ideas buffed up but i think this is a tremendous intellectual property i think it's tremendous and i don't know anybody else who can do this all right let's see what we got here i could become a member that'd be a fine thing to do that'd be a would improve my chances of getting into heaven enormously Member forum. Did it not log me in? It did not. Let's try that again. Does it see me? It does. All right, here we go. Stress for launch questions and more. 804, stress for launch questions. Uh -huh. 16 posts. That's going to be challenging. Henry Lumley's uh, there. For, let me just take a look at it. So here's GK Masterson. Here's Flippin' 2 a.m. Here's Trevor Duell. Here's JR. Chris Taylor. Justin Witsit, Judy Sheeks, Marusha again, Marusha again, Martin Archer, Marusha again, Gearhead in Space, Marusha again. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we are going to stay here until we get through these questions, but I'm only going to take one question uh, from people who have made multiple posts. I'm sorry that's not fair, and, and you are members and stuff. It's just triage at this point, so the best I can do. Sorry about that. So that's what we're going to do. Let me move these guys over here so I can see the live comments. Feel the rage continuing to, to grow. Uh, all right, here we go. Come on now, Billy. Let's get it together, man. All right, so... Uh, G.K. Masterson. Uh, Bill, I think you really need to get out of California. You haven't heard that for a while. 
because it's going to get bad once they start screwing over the farmers in the Mississippi River system the way they're screwing over the farmers and ranchers in the Colorado River pact states. And here's a bunch of links. Most of us are of the mind, not one drop. I guess that those links refer to us taking their water. Also, I've been doing some research on YouTube on how to get on the right side of the algorithm without having to cave to the woke. Do you want me to email you what I found, or do you already know about it? Thumbnailing more live streaming on a regular schedule, shorter videos. I don't know any of those things. Uh, uh, GK, we need to set up a, a conference call about that. That's important, and, and we need to get that in detail, so email me about that. Um, also, been trying to do some research. Oh, sorry. Also, Larry Correa of Sad Puppy Monster Hunter fame just put up a book in defense of the Second Amendment for pre-order. Since you, Scott, and Steve are often discussing issues of guns, might be a good resource for you to add to your library when it comes out. Great. So uh, Larry's a science fiction writer, and uh, GK told me he's a possible uh, contact to help run traffic to this thing and write episodes and stuff. So um, if he's writing a book about the Second Amendment, then chances are good he knows who I am, and that'd be great to... We need to get people to the crowdfunding site. That's the only thing that's standing in front of us now. Okay, moving on. Uh, flipping 2 a.m. Uh, number one, rip reverse free market abilities, and number two, Russia, Ukraine. All right. I'll answer both of these. Uh, rip reverse free market abilities. You stated that the rip reverse comet was crowdfunded, then corrected yourself, and not blaming you. A lot of people have made that mistake. It's actually pre-sale. Uh, my question is, why has the right fallen so far that we don't believe we can do anything without either a rich person coming in to save the day, Elon buying Twitter, or by crowdfunding? I'm not saying that crowdfunding is bad, but it amazes me that we went from free market Americans can do anything to it's impossible for me. What do you believe has caused this shift? Either way, we can't wait for you to finally start making movies. Thank you for that. I needed that help. Uh, that support there. Clipping. Uh, my experience, having done this for 15 uh, years now, on and off, is that conservatives will give money to just about anything other than the one thing that could actually make a difference. That's been my experience. They'll they'll make donations to the Heritage Foundation. They'll members at Daily Wire or BillWhittle.com. Uh, they will um, they'll send large checks to Republican National Committee. They'll send large checks to Republican candidates. But when you talk to them about um, when you talk to them about something as ephemeral as film or TV, they just don't see the point. They think that you're dicking around. And uh, that's why I thought that that invisible video was so important. And I, I have not yet begun to push that video. Uh, as hard as I plan to. Um, I think that Invisible makes a cast iron case, you know, that we're fishing in the 5% of the potential market, 5% of one potential market, and furthermore, that 5% is already saturated and already on the team. They've already bought our product. Why do we need to be selling everything to that 5%? Why don't we go to the 95%? So I've got a really good pitch. Now the question is, will people actually part with their money? And generally speaking, the answer is no. Um, and I don't know why. Uh, I mean, I just told you why, but I don't know exactly why they can't see it. I suspect it's because conservatives are just very practical. And the connection between uh, sending Bill some money so that he can write scripts, so that he can do animation, so he can produce 
uh, science fiction stories that then run on YouTube that are seen by people that then eventually go out and vote. I think that's just I think there's just too many steps. It's not that they don't understand it. I just don't think they believe the connection. And and to their credit, absolutely, it is a much more convoluted uh, causality path. Most conservatives think, well, then why don't we just give the money to the Heritage Foundation or TPUSA or something like that? We'll get action right away. And you will. And, and I'm not I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it. I don't want, ever be, I don't want anybody ever say that I didn't say this every single time. These are amazing organizations that do great work, but nevertheless, the invisible argument still stands. They're preaching to the choir. Um, so, can I convince people to, to do this? We're going to find out soon enough. Um, we, uh, we got some, we got, like I said, I didn't push this thing quite as hard as I wanted to yet. I, there's a lot of balls in motion, a lot of things have to be timed, and I just nearly ran myself to, into the ground getting it out the door. But we got, we got some interest, we got some funding, a little bit, uh, not nearly as much as I thought we would get, and certainly not as much as I hoped for. But I'm not finished flogging that horse yet. Uh, so that brings us back to crowdfunding. Uh, if I understand the question correctly, you say, we, why do we depend on somebody rich, or why do we depend on crowdfunding, which essentially, forgive the expression, is a bunch of people who aren't rich? Well, what is in the middle? There are, to buy Twitter is $40 billion, right? To, to buy the pilot of this thing is probably 800 grand, maybe a little more. And the pilot's more expensive. Do a first season, it's probably six, seven million dollars. They started the show talking about the Batman thing that lost it. $100 million, not even gonna release it. And they're not gonna release it because it's too woke, and it's too woke meaning it's too political, which means they spent a hundred they spent three hundred million dollars on Batgirl to make it political, and then they made it so political that they couldn't release it. But the point is they spent three hundred million dollars to get this woke message across, and I'm having a hard time getting three hundred thousand dollars. And so I don't really know what to tell you about that. Uh, flipping, it's if 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 we can crack this egg. Look, I've gone into the details on my on the, on the economic model on this, and I'm not going to go through them again. But I will say this only: the first raise is the hard raise. After that, it's automatic. If you if you can get the raise to do what you say you're going to do, and then you do it then after that, it's a slam dunk because the people who went in first are the ones who are taking the big risk. And there's a lot of people who see the product that the first people put in there that never even saw the first raise. You get the first raise done, then I think the machine essentially just runs itself. I really genuinely believe that, uh, especially with this model. Because if we went to the traditional model and we did a first season for $10 million or five or whatever, then we'd have to go find another five or ten million dollars to do the second. We'd have to go find another five or ten million dollars to tell the story of Taffy Three. And we'd have to keep finding all this money, and we'd have to find a way to market it and monetize it and all the rest of it. If we crowdfund it, we just have to deliver it. That's all we have to do. We just have to deliver it. And the more of this we deliver, the larger our audience gets. The more confidence they have. The more money we can bring in. The better the product we can put out. And and. And once somebody starts that boulder rolling, it just goes faster and faster and faster. It's getting it going. And I'm having some problems with that. 
So if you're one of the people, oh, forget I said anything. I just did not say a single word there. Scratch that thought. I was speculating about something completely different. Um, I mean that. Um, so so the, left's, the left gets it. The, the Batgirl is a trivial thing in the culture war. They only spent $300 million on that. And they didn't get anything out of it. And they wrote it off. Because because they wrote it off because they knew that it was actually damaging them politically. It was so bad that it was going to hurt them politically and financially, so they took the financial bath to, to, so that they wouldn't take the political bath. They know what they're doing, and we don't. Second question. Russia, Ukraine. Bill, in all the time I've been following you, it's never been more painful listening than when you talk about Ukraine. When you talk about Russians only having access to state-run media, then you repeat all the left-wing talking points from the people who told us that the ghost of Kiev was taking on the entire Russian Air Force single-handedly and that Ukrainian supermodels were sniping entire battalions of Russian soldiers. I just have to roll my eyes. Would you have a conversation about Russia-Ukraine with someone like Robert Barnes? I'm not looking for a debate, just a conversation between two people with different viewpoints and different sources of information. Uh, I've had this conversation um, this criticism in this conversation before, and you're right about the ghost of Kiev, and you're right about the Russian supermodel, and that's all fog of war, and I did talk about those things as if they're real. I'm pretty sure I said that this is fog of war at the time, but nevertheless, I thought they were real, and it turned out not to be real. But i tell you what did turn out to be real. What turned out to be real was the directions that the tanks went when they crossed the border between Russia and Ukraine. That part I got right. Um, and to me, everything after that is essentially academic. Right? I know, I, know, I know who did the invading and who didn't. Now, people have, have raised the criticism and said that Ukraine is an evil oligarchy run by evil people. That is very likely true. In fact, I have virtually no doubt that it's true. But that means there's two evil oligarchies run by two evil people, and one of them is a geopolitical threat to us, and they're the ones who invaded the other one. So I'm on the side of the guys that got invaded, not just because they got invaded, although that's most of it. I'm on their side because, because, because of who they're fighting. That's why I'm on their side. And I'd be happy to have a debate about it, and I'd be happy to, uh, to talk about it, and, and sure. Um, and, and there are undoubtedly things about this equation that I don't know. But like I said, I do know which direction the tanks went. And I do know that Vladimir Putin is no friend of ours. Does that make me a cheerleader for Ukraine? I suppose emotionally it makes me a cheerleader for Ukraine, which is not easy for me. Um, you might want to give me some of that um, uh, credit, you know, that, uh, that I've got a Russian wife. You would think that would incline me towards that side. It certainly inclined me to see both sides of the issue, for, at least in terms of how the Russian people see this story. So I'm happy to have this conversation. I'm not angry about it, but honestly... Uh, be honest with you, really, to me, there is there is that just that one issue. Uh, and furthermore, whatever you may think about Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, prior to Western aid and especially after Western aid, has done something very, very, very good for the United States. Very good. They have shown us what the Russians' capability in combat is against a roughly equal technologically opponent. There are a lot more Russians than there are Ukrainians, 
but their technology is roughly equivalent because essentially the crane was an SSR for decades, and so we know how their stuff works. And when and when you find out that you can sink the flagship flagship of the of the Russian Black Sea Fleet by sending drones off in one direction to pull all their search radars in another direction and then hit them with a couple of missiles that you've actually manufactured yourself. That's data. And it's not just military data. It's political, it's political force. The Russian loss of face in this catastrophe for them is twofold. There's the Russians can't show their face on the street anymore because, because it's an actual invasion, so there's the moral damage. But much more importantly than the moral damage, which is transitory, especially for people fundamentally unserious as we are, much more important than that is that we have seen operationally how their stuff performs and how their stuff performs against their own stuff, not how it performs against our stuff. Although, as the thing has gone on, we start to see, oh, so look at that, the MLAWs and the, and the javelins. They're killing them as fast as we can manufacture. Um, and they're dropping bombs from drones through sunroof in a car. So, so Russia, Russia, Russia as Russia, former Soviet Union, are our enemy for my entire life. Um, I am much less worried about their, their military capabilities, much, much less worried than I was before this thing happened. And that's because of the Ukrainians, right? They, I'm utterly convinced that the Russians were sure that, I don't know how many of them believed that they were going to be greeted as liberators. I don't think any of them really believed that, but I do think they thought it would be over in a week or two. And when they fought back, they showed us that there was a 40-mile convoy outside of Kiev. I think there's a question about Kiev coming up. 40-mile convoy. Apparently, they ran out of gas. So what that's telling me is all of the all of the pain and agony and suffering that we dealt with the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, regardless of the outcome, means we know how to do this stuff, and nobody else on the planet does. Nobody does. So um, I am on their uh, I'm on their side. I'm on their side because they're fighting people who uh, I think have shown since. certainly since 1918, 1917, that, that they're not law-abiding people, neither, neither are the Chinese. And I think, as I've said many times, that the, the lesson from the Ukrainian invasion is, is that what we used to think made a successful invasion, which was armored columns and, and air cover, doesn't, doesn't work anymore. There's been a revolution in military affairs. Man-portable anti-aircraft defenses and man-portable anti-tank defenses have essentially rendered the traditional model that the Russians, Soviets, and then the Russians built their entire house on. Large numbers of armor units, brute force, that kind of thing. No, that's not going to work anymore. It doesn't work in this day and age anymore. Even, not when you're fighting Iraqi tanks, they're made by the Russians. When you're fighting the Russian front-line tanks, they're best stuff. They're, they're garbage. There's always on YouTube, and I see this with China as well, uh, I see um, uh, I see posts, videos that say, 
uh, the new, uh, whatever it is, the SU-54, whatever, the, the felon. It's an F-22 killer. I said, is it? Uh, I haven't seen one in action. Uh, turns out there's only eight of them. That should tell you something. But I've never believed it. Here, this is the new Chinese bomber, which looks exactly like the B-2. You can only imagine my surprise. This is the bomber that's going to finally give China parity with the U.S., just because it looks like the B-2 doesn't mean its cross-section is the same as the B-2. Just because the felon looks like the F-22 doesn't mean it's as good as the F-22. The F-22 is unbeatable, and we know that because the F-22 has smashed the best air force in the world and then the second best air force in the world. F-22 has utterly defeated the United States Air Force, and then it's utterly defeated the United States Navy. And, and I have heard that the uh, F-35 is performing much better than it did initially, probably because they didn't know how to use it yet. And so I'm feeling much better about the F-35s. I still think it was an insane way to purchase them, and I still think it's insane to get rid of the A-10s, and I don't see the F-35 doing close air support, but we built a lot of them. We got a lot of them out there, and more. they, they keep on coming. And the F-35, by the way, turns a turns a former landing craft ship, a helicopter deck, into a escort carrier. You put 20 lightnings on a on a uh, one of those uh, you know hornet wasp uh, type uh, ships. So it's increased our capability enormously. In any event, the real power of the F-25, uh, CP Tomes just mentioned it, they're flying supercomputers. Look, look, we got this thing down. We know what we're doing, right? We're building F-15 uh, EXs, is it? Not because they're, not because they're able to get through radar defenses. They're not. They're not stealth fighters. We put the stealth fighters out in front, and they basically do. Um, they do the targeting. They data link it back to the F-15s. The F-15s are essentially just flying baggage carts filled with AMRAMs. Now, just so you don't think I'm a Pollyanna and all the rest of it, um, the AMRAM has been in service for since the 90s, I think, early 90s. And in the early 90s, the AMRAM was unbeatable. Chinese and Russian missiles have gotten much, much better, and our missiles are slow. I believe that there's a replacement for the AMRAM, and I'd like to believe that we have things up our sleeve that we don't talk about. In fact, I know that must be true. But when I hear about things like, here's the Russian super, here's the Russian supercavitating torpedo that can travel through the water at four, five, six hundred knots, no exaggeration, right? Um, yeah, the AIM-160 is its replacement. Uh, and I, I want to know what that, what the range on that is. Uh, I've been watching one of my favorite YouTube channels. I've never mentioned, I don't think I've mentioned it before, is Growling Sidewinder. It's a DCS channel. And this guy is terrific. And DCS is extraordinarily accurate and true to life. And I've watched this guy dogfight every, every single aircraft against every other single aircraft. I've learned a lot from him. A lot from him. And, um, and I've seen AMRAMs going up against some of these hypersonic Russian missiles or Chinese missiles. And that hypersonic advantage is a big advantage, and range is a big advantage. And, and we, I'm not saying, yeah, I am saying, I think we are no longer, I don't think we, I don't believe we no I don't believe we any longer manufacture the best air-to-air -air missiles now. 
We don't know how those missiles are going to behave in terms of their targeting. We don't know anything about their radar. We do know about ours, and ours works. We know that the Russian stuff generally doesn't because we've seen it in smoke and ruins on the field of, uh, of Ukraine. So that's why I support Ukraine. Uh, here's one from Trevor Duell. Aloha, Bill. Hello, Trevor. Just wanted to follow up on your lamentation of the state of our military. Well, that worked out well. Uh, being on current active duty, I have thoughts. It's true that the recruitment ads and TikTok videos are cringy and demoralizing. There are still plenty of constitutional patriots that love our country serving in the ranks. I know you know that. I both love and hate the term greatest generation. How can any subsequent generation of U.S. military stand the pressure expectation of living in the shadow of the greatest generation? World War II had the benefit, if you can call it that, of stark moral clarity, national resolve, a clearly identifiable enemy, and an obvious end state. These factors make fighting and winning a war a lot easier. Does it make more time, perspective, and lore to identify today's military heroes? Once you've had the greatest generation, where do you go from there? That is a great question. The greatest generation is a term that I use and will continue to use because I, I believe that they earned it. I've mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've been working on a, on a very long format firewall about Taffy 3. They found the USS Johnson was the deepest shipwreck ever found. And then in June or July, they found the Samuel B. Roberts, which became the deepest shipwreck ever found. I start this, this uh, firewall off by saying the guy who found him, uh, Victor, I've forgotten his last name. I said he's going to keep looking, and he and and soon he's going to find another Fletcher class destroyer down there. He's going to find USS Hole is going to be down there, and then if he looks a little bit to the south of the triangle between Johnson Hole and and Samuel B. Roberts, he's going to find the USS uh, Gambier Bay, which is a escort class, escort carrier, cheap carrier. He's going to find all four of those things. They're as deep as it can get. Uh, and then if he goes a little bit uh, considerably to the west, he'll also find the, uh, the, the wreck of the St. Lowe, which is another escort carrier. So we lost, on that day, we lost uh, two destroyers, three, sorry, two. We lost two Fletcher-class destroyers. We lost the Johnston. We lost the Hull. We lost the Samuel B. Roberts. Hearman was the third Fletcher-class destroyer, made a run, attacked all these ships, hit a bunch of them with torpedoes, and got out and survived. Hearman survived. It, it, it attacked the Japanese surface force and, and, and lived to tell about it. And then we lost uh, USS Gambier Bay was was sunk in the same engagement by um, gunfire. And then St. Lowe was sunk by the first kamikaze attack, I want to say. Um, so those are all down there at the bottom of the ocean. And when you understand what they did that day, you realize that has certainly earned them the... the uh, the, the moniker. I'm going to talk about, uh, I want to say it's Eric Carr, I'm not 100% sure it's Eric, but its last name is Carr. The guy who was serving the Afghan on Sam B. Robertson. I think he's a Congressional Medal of Honor awardee. But your question is a profoundly good one, so let me get to that aspect of it. There, you know, everything's a balance, um, Trevor. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. There are plenty of nice things about living in a society that's on the uh, increase rather than one that's on the decline. Uh, one of the disadvantages is you're more likely to get killed uh, in in the wars, right? So the U.S. was clearly on uh, an ascendant path all the way through the 20th century. 
And if you happen to be a young man in the 20th century, your chances of getting killed are significantly better than they are if you're a young man in the 21st century. So, we get to watch Social Decay, but not so many of us get turned into Pink Mist. Uh, Vietnam... Vietnam changed the way the West fights. Russians and the Chinese don't care about casualties. We do. And the difference between Vietnam, which was nothing like as deadly as, as the Iwo Jima or Okinawa, for example, or D-Day for that matter, but still 58,000 something. The reason Vietnam changed American uh, doctrine was because it was the first televised war. It's the first time we got to see bodies coming home from the battlefield large numbers of them. And after Vietnam, we as a country decided we're not going to have our, our young men killed like that. We will spend whatever we need to spend to give them the best weapon systems with the furthest standoff capability. We we're just talking about that with the AMRAMs so that, so that we, we, we pay extra in treasure so that we pay less in, in blood. And I think that's a fine, fine, fine idea. We also do things like go after our guys because because we become a quality-based military. That's why I called the that's why I call the um, firewall quality. That's the name of it. So, not to not to take away from any of the people that that are killed in Iraq, Iraq uh, Afghanistan, Vietnam, everywhere else, training all of it. Not to take anything away from them. They're, they made us equal sacrifice to the greatest generation. They are no less heroic than them. There's just many fewer of them. That's really, I guess, the whole argument, right? There's no, there's no diminutization, diminutization I can't get that, of heroism in terms of the quality of the heroism. We still produce heroes that are as heroic as anybody in the greatest generation. We just don't produce nearly as many of them because we don't have to, because the weapons now are smarter, so we don't have to. And and as we just talked about with Ukraine, this idea of facing, you know, 15,000 Russian tanks coming through the Fulda Gap. Diminishment? Thank you. Uh, we, don't have to, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, so, so yes, it, if you're serving in the military now, it, it can definitely be intimidating and, and demoralizing to hear all of the stories of heroism about the, the greatest generation when, in fact, they didn't do anything more heroic than our soldiers and sailors, airmen and marines are doing today. It's just that there was so much call for them. I forget what the numbers are. Iraq and Afghanistan killed. It's less than 10,000 in 20 years. Two wars, two decades. I think it's well less than 10,000 deaths. 58,000 in, in Vietnam. 750,000 in World War II, and then you get into the millions for the Civil War with a much, much smaller population. So, look, these are things we should be, we should be glad about. We should be happy that we don't have to kill as many people uh, to, to win wars. But again, here's the balance thing, right? How do you win these wars today? You don't. You don't win them. You, you, you don't. In, in, in World War II, which is really the last clear-cut case. I mean, there was a government of North Vietnam, and there was a government of North Korea, and if we'd fought those wars like we were serious, those would have been clear-cut victories instead of stalemates. Uh, but Al-Qaeda, you know, 
what, yeah, what do we do? Roy Hamill says millions of our enemies died in the Middle East to our 10,000. It's about a thousand to one ratio, which is so important that I'm going to take a moment of dead air to read something and it's going to take me a second to find it and you're just going to have to bear with me on this. I'm sorry. Um, but it's worth it. This quote um, is going into uh, the firewall, but I don't have it memorized yet. Um, just give me one second. It's worth it. Somebody talking about this exact issue, talking about the modern military and so on. I just got to get past all of this junk. Um, sorry. Sorry. I know this is. There's nothing worse than dead air. Uh, and if I don't get it in the next minute or two, I'll drop it. No, I don't, I don't have it handy. Okay, um, it was. Uh, I'm still looking for it. It, it was just really good. Sorry, sorry. Talk amongst yourselves. I can't find it. Um, basically, it's an intercept. It's a radio intercept from uh, from Al Qaeda in Iraq. One of many. Um, one of many. And this isn't our words. This is the direct literal translation. It was a it was a radio intercept from Al Qaeda in Iraq to uh, Al Qaeda HQ. And it was I've got this almost verbatim. The thing said, God help us all. The people we are fighting are insane. We shoot at them and they run towards us, meaning they don't run away. Um, he basically says they're unstoppable. They're demons and, and they're annihilating us, um, which is why we haven't had any more terrorist attacks. All of Al Qaeda, which, which was eighty thousand strong on September twelfth of two thousand and eleven, uh, two thousand and one, and by two thousand two was hundred thousand. Hey, look, we just knocked America off. Hey, let's join. Well, they're gone, and the reason they're gone is because they're dead. They're dead mostly in the sands of Iraq. So, you need to factor that in. When people talk about the Iraq War was a complete failure. It wasn't a complete failure. It wasn't a complete failure because you're looking at what happened and you're not looking at what didn't happen. What didn't happen was a lot of nastiness that could have happened, would have happened here if they hadn't been over there doing what they did. So yeah, it was a thousand to one, something like that. I know in Fallujah, I want to say it was something like 700 to one or something in their backyard, booby trap places they grew up in. We just went in there and kicked their asses. So, um, so w while the greatest generation gets that credit I don't think there's ever been more, I, I know there hasn't been more capable or, oh, here, Marisha found it. It's great having my own little automatic research team. The quote is, quote, we will not fight them. They are not normal. When we shoot at them, they run towards us. If we fight them, we die. They are worse than the sons of Satan. That's a Taliban radio intercepts that was in, in Afghanistan. 
And those sons of Satan, those demons, are guys like you, uh, Trevor, and, and all of the other people who are there um, out there doing the, the, the dirty work. So you, you just have to ask yourself, again, it's like anything else. It's, it's risk-reward, it's cost and benefit. The greatest generation gets covered in glory forever because 750,000 of them died. And a couple hundred of them died on Samuel B. Roberts and on the USS Johnston, and we don't take those kind of losses anymore. We might. And if we do, if we get into the kind of shooting war where we lose a carrier, one carrier, it's 5,000 people gone. Um, we have become virtually, so virtually invulnerable on the large scale, on the, on the civilizational scale. Now, again, I'm not trying to minimize all, minimize all the losses we've taken, but it's at the point now when it's clear to me that we could get into a full-on shooting war with anybody in the world, and if they sank a U.S. carrier, they would consider that to be a victory, no matter what the outcome was. And this idea that these, that these carriers are invincible and 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 cannot be lost in any circumstances it will be the death of us if we if we find ourselves in a serious shooting war and we find out that the, that the USS Abraham Lincoln is at the bottom of the ocean and 4,000 people are dead then we better ask ourselves did they accomplish their mission because when you are in war you will lose assets and and that's, we're at the point now where it's inconceivable that we would lose a carrier. I closed this thing on the same with B. Roberts and the greatest generation Navy in World War II, the Pacific War in World War II. I close it by talking about how Samuel B. Roberts, two five-inch guns, was called the destroyer escort that fought like a battleship. The Samuel B. Roberts was the smallest ocean-going vessel in the U.S. Navy in World War II, ocean-going. PT boats were smaller, but they were not blue water ships. Destroyer escorts were the smallest, they were smallest ships in the Navy. And these guys went in there and got under the guns of cruisers and battleships. In fact, there's a story, part of the story that I'm telling. Samuel B. Roberts got so close to a Japanese cruiser that the Japanese cruiser could not de depress their guns enough to hit it. So they got under their guns. But the, the, the part of the story that is so amazing to me, it's these little details that just ring with me. At one point in this battle, the Samuel B. Roberts and this Japanese cruiser were so close that people could throw things. There were guys throwing, like, potatoes. You could, you could throw a potato and hit the enemy hull. And both of those ships were engaged with other targets. That's how much was going on. You think about that. You got ships that are within throwing distance, hand grenade distance, pistol range, five times that. They're, they're close enough for you to throw something and hit the other ship, and neither of these two ships are firing at each other. Both of them are firing at something else. That's how much is going on. So, so the smallest ship in the U.S. Navy, Samuel B. Roberts, does what it's supposed to do, turns around this Japanese invasion force, saves Taffy 3, saves Taffy 2, saves Taffy 1, saves the entire landing operation, saves the Marines and, and Army on the beaches that would have been shelled by this enormous surface fleet. They, if they get past Taffy 3, if Taffy 3 doesn't happen, that center force, Japanese center force under Korea, destroys 20, well, let me think. So six escort carriers plus six escorts, three destroyers, three destroyer escorts, six plus six escort carriers, so that's 
12 in each of the taffies. So that's 36 warships in taffy, one, two, and three, right? And then there's all the unarmed and unarmored troop transport tankers, all the stuff that's sitting there on the landing beaches, plus the troops. So if Johnston, Roberts, Hull, don't turn around and, and sink with half of their crews, then we're going to lose 20 warships, countless transports, tankers, and how God knows how many guys on the beach when the, when the Japanese big guns start shelling the, the beaches. But they did turn around. Okay, Smallest ship in the Navy. Smallest ship that the Navy ever put to sea. And my entire point of doing this video is, two years ago, the captain of the largest ship that we've ever put to sea, the USS, uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt, largest vessel we've ever put to sea with the exception of the Ford now, Nimitz class aircraft carrier is by far the biggest vessel that we have, that anybody has ever floated. And this guy is out there and the captain of that ship says, we have to return to port. We can no longer continue our patrol because COVID has infected our ship. We have a number of sailors who are sick with fevers and we're asking for help. We're returning to port because safety is our number one priority. That's a direct quote from him. Okay, so there's your problem, right? There's your problem. That's a problem you're going to have to fight, Trevor. You're not only going to have to fight against the enemy, you're going to have to fight against this, this attitude, which is horrific. And we're trying to get the people, we're trying to recruit the people who set our, our ships on fire. Uh, Enterprise CBN 65 was larger. No, it wasn't. Not, not, not even close, Dave. I'm, I'm quite sure that, that, that it was not anything close. The, the Nimitz-class carriers are significantly bigger than anything that came before. Um, uh, anyway, um, so if we find ourselves in a real shooting war, all the stuff will evaporate, just like all the garbage that was in front of us um, on, uh, on Pearl Harbor Day, right? Was Admiral Husband in charge of Pearl Harbor defenses? Some people say he got the short end of the stick, that it wasn't fair, but he was the guy. Longer? Well, if it's longer, it's longer because of, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure it's longer. I'd really be quite shocked because the, the, the Nimitz class is significantly larger than, than, than Enterprise. And if it, turns out it's if it turns out it's longer than it's longer, give me the, give me the, the tonnage displacements of, of the Nimitz of the USS uh, Enterprise uh, CVN-65. Give me the displacement. Okay, so the largest ship we've ever sent down there, maybe not the longest, but the largest ship by far, had to come back to port because he couldn't handle the fact that 12, 20, 15, 30, 50 soldiers were running fever, sailors were running fevers versus this guy who takes this destroyer escort with two five-inch guns against um, the largest, uh, okay, Enterprise, one, one, two, six feet, Nimitz, one, zero, nine, two feet, fine. It's the longest ship in the, in the history of the Navy. I said the biggest. What are the gross displacements, please? Um, so uh, that's what this thing's all about. I got to move on. But thank you for being out there, Trevor, and thank you for the um Okay, so the Nimitz is a hundred thousand long tons displacement. What's the enterprise? It turns out it's thirty feet longer or something.
so we've got two uh, longish questions from uh, from uh, JR. I'm waiting for this. Yeah, displacement is much higher than limits. It's a bigger. It's a bigger ship. Um, so I've got two from JR. He says. Paragraph one, midterm elections. Paragraph two, something fun and thought-provoking. I'm going to take the fun and thought-provoking one, if you don't mind. Uh, if the universe is infinite, 93,000. So, Enterprise is bigger than I thought it was, but it's still nine-tenths of the, roughly, approximately nine-tenths of the size of the Nimitz. So, the Nimitz was the biggest ship we've ever set. Um, third heaviest carrier class after the Nimitz and the Gerald R. Ford. There you go. Um, Okay, uh, if the universe is infinite in time and space, then the most unlikely events to occur in the universe will occur an infinite number of times. That's right. Parenthetically, the concept of an infinite universe seems to be a paradox in and of itself. The universe is finite, in, is infinite in theory only, because we can only see a portion of the observable universe from our perspective in time and space. In space and time, rather. If the universe is expanding, then a finite universe is just getting larger at light speed because it seems impossible for an infinite universe to expand into anything more than is already an infinite universe. If the existing universe is expanding, then it's always finite to some degree. If the universe is physically infinite, then at any point in space and time is the center of the universe. That's also true. But if it's still expanding, then it's technically finite because something infinite cannot expand into anything more than it already is, which is an already theoretical infinite universe. G.K. Masterson for the win, uh, just as I was about to open my mouth. Uh, this uh, JR is a horsepower problem. One of the terms I've, I've coined that I'm most proud of. Uh, it's a horsepower problem. So. I've, I've used this many times. I think it's actually a really good way to think about things. So we have a certain number of cubic centimeters of, uh, of brains, and we have a certain number of neural connections. And as my friend Jim says, the, the, the corpus callosum, the, the nerve fibers that connect the left and right hemispheres of the brain, are by far, orders of magnitude, the most complex network in, in, in the universe far more complex than anything that we've constructed. So considering the fact that it wasn't too long ago we were, we were just coming down from the trees and picking up rocks and pointy sticks, what we've done with essentially the same brain volume and the same number of synapses and connections is astonishing. Astonishing. And I am, I am and I always have been, without fail, enormously proud of, of being a human being. Enormously proud. We talked about oh, we're a bunch of killer apes. Please, every animal's a killer ape. You put, you put. I was, I remember this from University of Florida. I was in the class, and a guy was talking about, you know, everybody says uh, humans are so bad, and we're just murdering people and stuff. He's, we we're in a, one of those auditorium classrooms, and he looked around. And he said, there are 350 of you in here right now listening to this lecture. Right, you're sitting in your chairs. If I put 350 animals of any kind, to put 350 gorillas in this room, sitting next to each other like this for an hour, two of them will come out. Right. And I thought, my God, that's the best argument I've ever heard. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. So here are our brains. We do amazing things with them. But there are some things that we do not have the horsepower to understand. We don't have the power. 
And the best way to think about things that are higher than you are is to, is to make analogies with things that are lower than you are. Best way to understand four-dimensional space is to understand two-dimensional space, because as three-dimensional creatures, we can look down on an imaginary two-dimensional world and we can see things that normally don't make sense. For example, if there is a two-dimensional flat land and I look down, I can see the outside of the creature and I can see the inside of the creature because I'm three-dimensional. Two-dimensional creatures can't see the inside of them. So a four-dimensional creature is looking at the outside of me and he's looking at the inside of me at the same time. I don't know how, but I've got just enough horsepower to understand that it is not only possible, but true. So when we get into concepts like infinity, eternity, we have hit the horsepower limit. We do not have the capability to understand these things. We have the ability to talk about them. We have the ability to manipulate them. We are astonishingly great at what we do with what we have. But nobody understands infinity. We understand infinity as a concept. We understand it as a, as a mathematical symbol. We can kind of get our head around it, right? To answer your question specifically as far as, as uh, to the degree that I understand the astrophysics involved, when you say the universe is expanding into something, that's a horsepower problem. It's not expanding into something. It is expanding, but there's nothing on the other side of the bubble. Well, when you say there's nothing, what do you mean? It's like a, like it's empty space with no stars or anything? No, there's nothing. You mean like, 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 like white out? No, it, there's nothing. There is nothing. That doesn't make any sense. There's something on the inside of the bubble, right? Yes. And it's expanding, right? Yes. It's expanding into something, right? No. No. There is nothing. It's not empty. It doesn't exist. It has no existence. It's not a big empty room. It's not, there's nothing there. There's nothing on the other side of that bubble. And we cannot, we cannot grasp that. It's beyond our horsepower. It's too much. We can, we can work with it. And we know it's true, because it is, but we cannot understand it, and we never will. So, yes, and I've, I've said this before too, Dave Big Booty pointed out, we are not three-dimensional creatures, we're four-dimensional creatures. This, this is a grand example. Uh, this iPhone has, uh, it has length, it has width, it has depth, and it has duration. It has duration. It's moving forward through time. This iPhone was here uh, last week or two weeks ago, and hopefully it'll be here next week, but it has duration. It is existing through the fourth dimension as it exists in the three dimensions. So that's something that we can kind of understand. But when you talk about time, here's what I personally believe based on the science I've read. I believe that the universe is a structure. It's a physical, multidimensional structure. There is no beginning and there is no end. It will. It has always been here and it always will be here. And furthermore, on top of that, I believe that free will is built into the structure of the universe because all of the free will decisions that we've made or will make define the structure of this thing. And then we say, but wait a minute, and this is where we run into the horsepower problem. There is no before and after. And when you, and I've tried, when you try to think in a world without time, if you try to think about things without time, it's virtually impossible. And I just, this split second ago, just did it. I just did it again. And I just did it again. I did it. I thought it. I, in the past, 
the past is as real as the present, the present is as real as the future. It's all there. It's just that our awareness moves along. Best example I ever heard of this, really helped me a lot, was that those of you who are ancient as I am, know what an LP is like, a record, a vinyl record, right? And if I hold up this vinyl record to you and say, what part of this record is real? You would say, well, what do you mean? What part of it's real? You say, all of it. Okay. Well, what part of this record has the music on it? What are you talking about? Well, here's a piece of plastic. Where is the music? It's, it's all. The, so the music's encoded on the entire disc. Yes, obviously. Then why is it that when I play the music, the only way I can hear the music is to hear it one groove at a time, one spot at a time. The only way I can hear music on this piece of plastic is for a needle to go down that groove and little tiny little movements connected to little electromagnets and they send electrical signals and that comes back as music. But the music is encoded on the disc, but I can't hear the music until I play it one instant at a time. That's what the needle is, you see? So that needle is our consciousness. The record is the universe. The, the universe has always been here. It's always been the way it is. Every decision we've ever made has always been there, always will be there. Things that have happened to you in the past are as real as the things that are happening to you now because the now that I just mentioned now is gone. Where did it go? Well, we think it disappeared, but we, well, we think it's disappeared because we can't see it because we don't have four-dimensional eyes. The me that just said this is behind me in the fourth dimension. The me that's about to end this sentence that I'm speaking right now is ahead of me in the fourth dimension. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and here he is and he's gone. Right? So... This is the horsepower problem. And fortunately, we have mathematics, which is a language I do not speak. But I do speak storytelling, and I do know how to listen, and I do know how to reason things. So when people tell me that these, when scientists, real scientists who don't have a political agenda attached to, you know, whether there's quantum entanglement or not, when they, through experimentation and scientific method, which is the greatest thing that we've ever invented as, as, as a species, is a scientific method. It's just a way of thinking about things. The scientific method is, is an invention. We invented it. And it is a way of thinking that produces extraordinarily astonishing results within the narrow confines of where that tool is applicable. But because the tool is so powerful, people assume that it's magic. And because they assume that it's magic, they want to have its magical abilities touch everything else. So science, when science is science, is astonishing. When you have people taking the prestige of science and attaching it to politics, that is stolen valor. You've, stole, you've stolen the, the credibility of science and attached it to something that science has nothing to do with. And you haven't raised the politics, you've just lowered the science. That's all there's to it. I'm not going to get through all of these. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to just do this last one, and my apologies to everyone else. I, I, if you repost them, I will—I swear I will not spend as much time next time because I got it out of my system. That's what I said last time, too. But. So if I didn't get to you, please repost it. Um, Chris Taylor. Uh, this will be the last one. Uh, Bill, I noticed you make a special effort to pronounce Kiev as Kiev, not Kiev. you also be making a similar effort to pronounce Mexico City as Ciudad de Mexico. Ciudad de Mexico and Paris as Paris. And New Orleans is Nolens. I get Nolens right, generally speaking. If not, why use local language pronunciations for some places and standard American English pronunciations for the other? 
Uh, I have noticed that sometimes newsreaders and other fancy jaw-jaw politicians will make a big deal out of giving the names of places like Nicaragua or Pakistan in the local language naming convention, but none of you ever seem to say Deutschland for Germany, Zhongguo for China, Hanguk for Korea, and so on. I was... Hanguk. Forgive me for this intrusion of vulgarity, but I never really knew where the term gook came from. And I'm pretty sure that was first used in the Korean War, and I just, um, seems to be the case. It's not a nice word, but I'd, I'd be willing to bet you that's where it came from. Um, I was wondering what the standard was for when you give the local name someplace and then give the American English one, since I can't find a pattern and I don't want to sound like I ain't learned if and I get invited to some opulent soiree, uh, signed Chris. First of all, Chris, I wouldn't worry about the, being invited to the opulent soiree. Um, so here's, first of all, you're absolutely right. There has been, there have been, okay, so everything that I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with in terms of the English language. This is an important distinction. I don't use the Chinese pronunciation for China or the Spanish pronunciation for Mexico because I am using the English language words to apply to them. So we're consistent here. I call Germany, Germany instead of Deutschland and, 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 and so on and so on and so on. So everything that I'm talking about, the changes between Kiev and Kiev and so on, are the changes between how those locations are referenced within English, right? Within English. We, I lived through the, uh, there was a gigantic, enormous shift in the pronunciation of Chinese words in English. The words were respelled in order to make the English pronunciation sound more like what the Chinese words actually sounded like. And this happened in the 70s, I want to say. Might have been the early 80s, but it's a, it's a while ago. So when I was a boy, the capital of China was Peking. And, um, and the leader of the Chinese communists was Mao Zedong. But now, it's not Peking, it's Beijing. And that guy in question, that mass murderer, is not Mao Zedong, it's Mao Zedong. And those English words have been updated to better represent the sound on the ground. One of my, it's not even a pet peeve, it's just something I don't do anymore. The capital of, of Russia, I don't, I pronounce, I, I pronounce that capital fairly close to what it's supposed to be. I don't say Moscow, I say Moscow, because that's how it's pronounced, Moscow. And I know that because my wife is Russian. She lived in Moscow for many years. So whenever I hear people say Moscow, I think, well, it's, but then I realize, no, it's until, until we respell it, so on. So when the invasion of, the, of Ukraine happened, I kept saying Kiev, 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 and then I kept saying Kiev, 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 Kiev. Till finally, I just got on the train and just said, okay, I could make a point out of being a guy saying Kiev, but I could do the same thing for Peking as well. So if the, if the English pronunciation changes by common agreement, then I'll, generally speaking, I'll go with the new English pronunciation. That doesn't mean I'm taking the Chinese pronunciation. Um, I hope that cleared that up. Uh, yeah. So the pencil... <laughs> Great example for Deutschland, and people may have already commented on this. So my dad uh, grew up in Pennsylvania, and he talked about the Pennsylvania Dutch. And I thought, 
there were Dutch people in Pennsylvania. Not that many Germans. So why do you call them the Pennsylvania Dutch? Is it because they are the Pennsylvania Deutsch? Ah, oh, that's interesting. All right, I must leave you now, and uh, and I I genuinely feel bad about it. Um, uh, but the show is what the show is. I keep threatening to do a, a second one, and, and and that threat is still hovering. I have a lot that I have to get done first, uh, and at least get the, these balls rolling. <laughs> Pardon the expression. Uh, this ball rolling and that ball rolling, and so on and so on and so on. That's taken a lot of my time and energy. Uh, yeah. Worcester for Worcester. Uh, the British have. Uh, last thing, when you hear me say that nine times, we're getting close to the end. I have often thought it would be fun to have men and women of goodwill from the United Kingdom and the United States get together and agree upon the spelling, pronunciation, and and whether or not words are obsolete in English and between American English and British English. And I play this game with myself sometimes. Sometimes I'll see a word spelled and I'll think that spelling is ridiculous because I think the American spelling is better and I'm, and I'm right about that. Sometimes I'll see examples where, the, where the, the British English seems to be more consistent. First one that comes to mind on that is aluminum versus aluminium. Aluminium, titanium, magnesium. I think the British are probably right on that one. So if we had this giant conference, I think men and women of goodwill who weren't out to prove anything and there was no score being kept or anything would agree that probably we should probably go with aluminium. Uh, my mother never said schedule. She would say schedule. Seems to me that if it was schedule, you'd take the C out of there. So I'm thinking that schedule should be spelled with a C. And here we come. Um, color versus color. I don't think you need the U there. I think color does it. Um, uh, and, and theater, I think, is an ER. And I think tire is definitely T-I-R-E, not T-Y-R-E. There's one word that actually annoys me. And, it's, and it annoys me because I just, I just feel it's obsolete. I feel like it's obsolete, and it's in common usage throughout England. Very common usage. All right, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an, an extra couple, three, a uh, couple of seconds of, of free TSL. What's well, all free? Extra TSL. TSL. Can anybody guess the word that is in common usage in English, but is al almost never used in America? It's a common word. It's not like knickers. It's not one of these. And by the way, that the, the British lose on anything having to do with with sexuality. Everything they the knickers, naughty bits. You know, they, no, um, but there's a there's a word that is in common usage in England, in in Britain and America, and the British pronounce it differently. So it's not it's not. Eric Blake said bugger. No, it's not. Petrol, good example, but it's not. It's not a different word. It's basically the same word that's not only pronounced differently, it's actually slightly different. I'm going to wait for a second or two. I'm not going to keep you waiting too long. It's a too, the question's too hard without providing more, more uh, clues. All right, here it goes. Um, the word in question in America is while. 
and in Britain they say whilst, whilst, whilst waiting for the train, this and this and this and this and this. And I just can't stand whilst. I just, think, every time I see whilst, I think, really? Whilst waiting for the train, uh, that's one. And then, um, oh, that reminded me of another one. Uh, oh, what is it? Oh, uh, the plurals for things. They say, we say you go to the hospital. They say you go to hospital. But we say we go to school, not to the school. So I think the, I think the British win this one. Right? We go to college. We go to school. They say we should go to hospital, not the hospital. I'm a fair-minded guy. I'm a man of goodwill. I'm going to give them that one. Um, uh, ah, that's interesting. Eric Blake said, whilst has always struck me as the embodiment of received pronunciation. That's, we're not going to get into that now, but that may be exactly what it is. It may be a word that they invented so that in, in perceived received pronunciation, which is what the British accent is. It's an invention that was invented in the 1800s. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, so, so hospital is one. And another thing that they seem to do that's very strange. First time chat from Infidel42. Disagree with aluminum bill. We don't add an extraneous I to molybdenum or a lanthanum. Well argued. How weird would platinum sound with an extra I? Well argued, sir. That is an excellent first time chat. I love people can make a great argument. Eric did that with the amendment in the, the women's issue thing. Excellent, 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 excellent argument. Um, uh, I was going to mention the plural. But, oh, we're good, thanks. Um, oh, come on. Uh, gosh, it just flew right out of my head. Remember the plural thing, and I was just, just talking about how it's Oh, um, it'll come to me. Uh, the final thing is, um, again, flat versus apartment. Those are two different words. I'm talking about the application of the same word. The British will often use plurals in places that we would not. For example, they would say that Exxon are installing a new set of pumps, or that. Um, or that uh, Colgate are working on a new uh, toothpaste. They look at they look at a group, a singular group, and they treat the treat it as a plural noun. They would say things like that corp that corporation. Are, you know what I'm saying. And they say maths. I think they went on maths. I really do. I, I'm, I'm a fair man. I, I think it's actually pretty close. I think we win most of them, but, but I'm willing to give them to them. If we were to, if we were to try to unify this, I, and they've made the case for math, and I said, uh, we say math. We, they say maths. What's your point? Our point is it's mathematics. Yes, it's not mathematic. Yes, maths. You're right. You win on that one. Uh, um, and I was just going to come up with one that they're clearly going to lose on, but I can't remember. Um, it's actually aluminum, so it's the discover of aluminum. Aluminum actually spelled it with an I, and it was a typo that stuck. Okay. Um, 
I'm willing to uh, I'm willing to, uh, to, to to go there. So um, oh yeah, Roy Hamill. Fun, boring, nerdy fact: Aluminum, when it was first discovered, was considered so rare and valuable that Napoleon actually gave away aluminum silverware as gifts to show how wealthy he was. You may not know this, but the Washington Monument was tipped with aluminum because it was so rare. Top of the Washington Monument was uh, aluminum. Uh, anyway, uh, no, we're not going to get we're not going to get into the metric system. The, the metric system is absurd. It makes perfect sense in terms of science and everything else. It is inarguable. Celsius temperature scale: zero is where water freezes, hundred is where water boils. Brilliant. Simple, clear, perfect for science, ridiculous in everyday usage. Horrible. Horrible. Um, and and uh, Nolan 778 gets it's great for engineering, but it's not great for human scale. That's right. It's not great for human scale. The temperature scale doesn't work. Somebody did a, a list of temperatures in, in, in uh, Kelvin, temperatures in Celsius, and temperatures in Fahrenheit. And... Uh, and my wife uses, uh, she uses metric, she, she, she weighs herself in kilograms and, and the temperature is in, in centigrade. And it's too coarse, it's right, it's not granular enough. And they, they, they claim it's like, well, so much better than the imperial system because everything's multipliable by 10. So, so what? So what? And, and furthermore, not only, not only so what, but when you use scientific terms like the metric system, and you apply them to non-scientific areas, you sterilize those things. I'd walk 1.6 thousand kilometers for that woman. Uh, you know, it, it, it is soulless. Shelby, AC got it. It is. It's, it, it doesn't, it, it, it sounds too clinical. Every time I hear people talking with the metric system in regular usage, especially when they're dealing with artistic things or poetry, I feel, I just kind of feel this kind of white coat Joseph Mengele thing kind of coming on. I, I, I just really do, you know? There's like, you know, my love lies meters away, you know? It's just, it's just, it's like I said a second ago, science is good for some things, leave the things that science is good for with science, and go with the things that uh, that aren't. Same thing for uh, altitude measurements. By the way, we measure altitude the way God intended, which is in feet. Uh, we're at 32,000 feet. We're at 33,000 feet. Not at 10,000 meters, because again, granularity is not good enough. Yes, now George is on to the real thing. We could switch to base 12 and have quarters and thirds baked into the system. Exactly. 12 is a terrific number. 10 is a highly unstable even number. But 12 is magnificent, because 12 you can divide into, 10 you can divide into 110, 10 ones, two fives, or five twos. 12 you can divide into 112, 12 ones, four threes, three fours. Two sixes, six twos. And all of our compasses are based on 12. Ta-da. If we had, no, get the other. East is not 100 degrees. South is not 200 degrees. 
That's why it works. That's why you, that, the reason it works is because when you divide the compass into parts of 12, 360 degrees is 12 times 3. That means that you can do things like north-northeast, northeast, east-northeast, east. Yeah, Eric said stood in bed is, um, uh, is a, yeah, uh, somebody was like a, somebody else's uh, yogi bearism. Okay. Um, I think I'm probably done with this one. And they should measure horses in, in hands. I, I don't want to know how many meters tall a horse is. I wonder how many hands tall it is. That's, why you, that's what you use on horses. Really. Honestly. Seriously. Ridiculous. Somebody ought to do something. And it's not going to be me. This show is made possible by the members of BillWhittle.com who uh, make everything possible here. And we're very grateful for your service and your and your support as always. And um, yeah, and there is a vacuum in the background. Somebody said there's a vacuum in the background. I kept thinking, you mean like when we were talking about the universe before? No, we're talking about a vacuum cleaner. All right. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can talk them into pulling up the carpet, ripping out the tacking nails, and then taking it outside, hanging it over a, a clothesline and beating it with a rattan... carpet whacker. <laughs>